Welcome to Scum, Beer and Villainy, the podcast about beer, geekery and everything in between. I'm Marcel Harper, the creator of the Beginner Brewer blog I've been brewing for more than a decade now. I'm joined as ever by my co-host and fellow beer nerd, Matt Bezling. Matt is the mind killer. He is the little death <laughs> that brings total obliteration. Hi, Matt. Hi, 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 hi. You've, you've learned your Orange Catholic Bible well. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I live by it. <laughs> I will let it pass through me until all that remains is there. Exactly. What a great line, eh? I mean, Frank Herbert. He knows what he's doing. Uh, yeah, he, he, he knows what side his Shai Halud is battered, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you know what I mean. If you know what I mean. I mean, I don't know what I mean, but, but I'm sure someone does. <laughs> yeah. So we are back in the studio, albeit telepresently. Um, we are in the middle of a global pandemic, as you know. What better time for beer? What better time for beer? What better time for beer when, when the world has gone crazy around you? Yeah. I would never have thought that we would be living in some sort of a post-apocalyptic world, but uh, here we are. If you don't think that this was like on the horizon, then you haven't been paying attention, Marcel. We've I've been seen. due a good dystopian nightmare for a while now. <laughs> well, we're in it, man. We're <laughs> in it and we can get out. So yeah, in keeping with social distancing, you and I are not uh, opposite each other as normal and uh, we're in our respective abodes. So we're hoping or, that technology or, or will not fail. just outside our respective abodes is the case, maybe. Yes, you're sitting in the frosty winter. Mm. I am. I'm enjoying, I'm getting some vitamin D, which apparently is very important to protecting yourself from the coronavirus, as well as not using any 5G devices. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've heard it here first, folks. Matt has officially <laughs> lost his mind. <laughs> Matt, the music today brought to us by a friend of ours, Lindo M. Hi, Lindo. And thanks for the music. And thanks for the music. I like his music. What do you think, man? Um, I, this is, this is funky. I like funky. Indeed. I'm a fan of funky. I bet you know I'm drunk enough To say the things I wouldn't say If I didn't have anything else to blame I bet you know I wouldn't know To walk along my own shadow I stumble towards a lonely floor I'm on the ground so check out Lindo's music. We're going to post a link to his uh, website. Other places you can find him on the internet uh, in the show notes. So check it out. Thank you very much, Lindo. We are looking forward to your future work. Are you staying sane? I am. I am. I have three children, so sane is a very relative term. It's but, very relative. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, um, staying at home and doing nothing is basically my life before this. So... So you hardly skip the beat. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life continues as normal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, beer-wise, have you? did you survive the weird South African prohibition period we had? I did. I did. I did survive it um, through a mixture of black market content, contacts and um, having a small cash that I built up beforehand. So, yeah, yeah I got through it quite well. Uh, I must say the pressures of lockdown actually forced me to drink more than I normally do. So thanks, Nkosasana Dlaminizuma. You have mm. hastened my my imminent liver damage. Indeed, yeah. It, it, uh, for those listeners who are not uh, local South Africans, uh, 
may come as a surprise to hear that one of the strategies our beloved government decided to go with is prohibition. A, uh, a plan and strategy which has a long track record of success around the world. Yes, it's been shown to be super effective. At creating new criminal underclasses. <laughs> yes, yes, effective at the one thing they don't want. Indeed. And we know that one thing we really want more of is a criminal underclass. Yes, we don't have enough of that. We certainly don't. Uh, but enough of that. Yes. Of course, homebrewers kind of laughed in the face of prohibition because they were just trucking along making beer anyway. Yeah, I'll just use these 40 kilos of yeast I have and <laughs> yeah, exactly. pop, pop out another beer. I, I believe you pulled out quite a nice one over lockdown, Marcel. Yeah, I created a, a bit of a ginger um, triple, really, as it turned out. So sort of a Belgian triple with some ginger added. It uh, really is very nice. Well, I would love to taste it, but I assume there's not going to be any left by the I time we're in a very position much to do doubt this. There. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I've got another uh, one in the fermenter, so that one you will taste. Okay, it's cool. A, it's a familiar favorite. So. Uh, are we hearkening back to brewery days? We are, yeah. So there's a there's a certain little steam beer in the fermenter right now, which I'll be bottling uh, maybe even today. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. At least you're keeping yourself busy, Marcel. I am. Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> I do that well enough on my own. <laughs> cool. So what's our, what's our menu for today, Marcel? So as my quote may have clued in some of the uh, more well-read listeners, today we're going to be looking at some fiction, more notably science fiction. Mm. Um, also in an ongoing attempt to convince our listeners that we are more intelligent than we actually are, I thought that maybe we should do something around novels and reading, you know. Yes, yes, using wordy things to have language. Read, word. we got the best words, man. We got the best words, tremendous words. <laughs> the these, best. These words are just going to disappear any day now. Any day, yeah, they're just going to fade away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to look at science fiction novels, and I thought also, you know, because, you know, lockdown and what we're currently going through, you know, lends itself to people being a little bit more homebound, uh, maybe catching up on those novels you've always wanted to read but never did. Um, so I thought that it would be a handy little guide for our fellow geeks who are listening in on what, what could be on their reading list, you know? Um, sure, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume, and I don't know your list, but I'm going to assume that pretty much anybody who's in any level of nerdery is going to have read most of the things on our list. Perhaps, but then we maybe reread it. Uh, yes, I yes. Think well, I mean, a, they should be rereading these things on a daily basis. Yeah. I don't know about you, but that's something I've found about myself during this lockdown period is I'm, I'm kind of revisiting favorites. Mm. Um, mm. A very nostalgic kind of mood. Um, well, I think it's probably trying to find some sense of normality in everything, you know, it's mm. returning to an old favorite. Exactly. So so even if you have read these, I'm sure that, that rereading them might be… Uh, might bring some, some stability to your life. Exactly. Yeah, fantastic. And we're going to do it in the terms of a draft one of my favorite uh, formats of podcasting. So the idea being, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, depending on who goes first, uh, once you nominate a best sci-fi novel, that one's off the board. The other person can't pick it anymore. So there's going to be a fair amount of competition here to get to the right ones. Of course, there are no losers in the draft because if your opponent picks one, uh, you want it, it still gets out there. But let's see how that goes. Yeah, but I still want to win. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Winning is everything. Winning is everything. We're going to win so much that you're going to get tired of winning. <laughs> I, I've got to tell you, I'm really tired of winning. 
a rare and privileged position, man. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. And we, we've put some limitations on, on which novels we can pick. Mm, mm. And we've, we've, we've drawn an arbitrary line in the sand. Yeah. Um, and that line is called Dune. Hmm. Do you want to enlighten us as to why we picked it? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Look, I mean, it, it is a little arbitrary because there have been great sci-fi novels, you know, across the years, you know, the, the golden age of sci-fi um, all the way up to like the 1950s, 1960s. But, you know, it feels almost as if Dune was a, was a, was a high watermark, um, you know, a line in the sand as far as, as science fiction was concerned. It was a, a turning point of, uh, uh, um, I, I hesitate to use the phrase more thoughtful, but definitely um, a more, more understanding of the world that we live in and, and using those assumptions to challenge the way we look at pretty much everything. Um, Dune changed a lot of the way that people saw sci-fi. It wasn't just about Buck Rogers in outer space. You know, it was there's a uh, there's there's philosophy and politics and mm. which is which isn't to say that uh, those things didn't happen before Dune, but it's probably a case that it became more mainstream to do so after yeah. Dune. Um, in much the same way that Lord of the Rings changed fantasy, Dune changed sci-fi. You know, it, you, it's very hard to write sci-fi nowadays without in some way either borrowing or or doing a callback to, to the tropes that were established, you know, in 19, what was it, 65. Yeah. So so that's, that's kind of the line we've drawn. Um, everything before that, we've, you know, if you haven't read something like The Stars Our Destination or whatever it might be, you know, we're not going to talk about that today. We're, we're really looking at kind of more modern sci-fi um, and... Yeah, we. I don't know about you, Marcel, but probably from my perspective, my my kind of golden age of sci-fi um, is that kind of 1970, 1980, 1990 period. Um, oh, yeah, because for sure. that's that. Those are my formative years. So that's kind of when I was really entrenched in the entire fandom of sci-fi. Hundred percent. I mean, I think for me, when I first read Dune, it was such a pivotal moment for me in in my reading life that it was probably the first novel I read which took me somewhere. You know, mm. it, 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 it mm. creates this absolutely believable alternative reality and culture yeah. and political environment and history. And it just felt like, you know, I was transported. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like I said, the fingerprints of June, uh, you know, sits on so much sci-fi that we read today. You know, mm. in popular culture, things like Star Wars, uh, you know, a very heavy debt to, to what came before it. Um, June, and it's probably quite important now because we've got a uh, what for nerds should be a you know a, a landmark moment uh, of the, the the movie by uh, Dennis Villeneuve coming out um, sometime um hopefully December so um it's it's nice that we're kind of discussing it and if you and you know if you're looking forward to the movie then you probably should reread the book beforehand because um, it's dense you know there's going to be a lot. Mm. No, so it's not easy reading. Um, it, it, it does reward a little bit of persistence. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, the thing also about Jean is that there's a lot of characters. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, of building of those characters and the world that they live in. And it's because he uses, you know, I wouldn't say with a little different language. He uses, you know, terms that are invented for the book. Um, you kind of can lose track. And, you know, having it reread it once or twice or three times or, as a case, maybe for us, maybe 20 or 30 times, 
um, you know, it, it, it does reward you because you kind of get into the flow of that language mm. and the, the, the beauty of these, you know, semi-Arabic sci-fi words like Shai Hulud and Bene Gesserit and um, which I might add the pronunciation thereof is a, you know, sticking point to this day. But um, yeah. but yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's, be- it's a beautiful uh, work of art, really. And, and if you haven't read Dune, please go out and read it right away. Mm. Stop the mm, podcast absolutely. and go read it. And another thing to keep in mind is that Dune read now is very different to the the environment that you would have read Dune in in the 60s or 70s. Um, it's, you know, with overpopulation and ecological scarcity and climate change, what you read in Dune is very much, you know, a, 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 a future that we could see, you know, not... Mm. Not in terms of spice or wounds, but in terms of being having to really be precious about your natural resources to survive. You're right. Um, and and June, uh, you know, the, the Fremen are a are a, a benchmark for that kind of concept. Hundred mm. percent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's again we we see a lot of that in the '60s sci-fi tradition as well, where people became a little bit more environmentally aware, and and you get uh, you know. Dune, you get movies uh, like Silent Running and, and those which have a real explicit yeah. environmental message. Yeah, it was, you know, it was the 60s and 70s. So you, you had this counterculture concept of this is the world we live in. Yeah. And, and and that was very important to sci at the time. Um, and it's funny how these cycles happen because we are now in a very similar point uh, in, our, in our cultural understanding of these things. Um, because we've come full circle back to the point where we realize that this is a planet that we have to protect. And June speaks, it tells us stories about people who need to live in that kind of planet. Yeah. And I think it also references the sort of Middle Eastern reality, you know, in a way which is very, um, you know, sort of, uh, it, it looks at, at it from an insider's point of view, from a, from a yeah. person who lives in that culture rather than seeing it as the other. Yeah. Look, I mean, we're, we're getting quite textual here, but I mean, uh, I think um, Terry Pratchett had a very interesting quote, uh, possibly not Terry Pratchett, but uh, it's something like it's it's no, it's it's not a surprise that most religions are formed in deserts. Mm. I know? do think that's from Terry Pratchett. Yeah, I, I've got a feeling it is. But, but, the, but the idea is that, you know, June speaks to the fact that when you are subjected to the harshest and harshest of circumstances, then this, the, the spirit is what keeps you going. The soul is what keeps you going. Mm. And what, whatever you invent or whatever you believe to get you through that, um, there is no real harsher landscape than the, than, than the baking desert, you know, where, where every step is a waste of resources. Mm. The real crucible for the soul. 100% crucible for the soul. Yeah, 100%. But anyway, so we're not we're not talking about June. We're talking about what came after June. Yeah, we've restricted ourselves to anything published basically a day after June. And uh, we're going to have a look at some of our favorites. We're going to see if cool. we can snipe each other's picks and thus win. Yeah, I know, I know we're going to fight about one particular author, but but let's see which direction we've well, gone. Well, I think in. that particular author was a temptation for me not just to populate my entire list with Yeah, the yeah I know. Yeah. Just like 10 books all by him. <laughs> Very easy list. Very easy list. Well done. Research done. Yeah, done. I trust I wouldn't love myself. 
We are always doing beer. Um, and today we are going to be contributing to our ongoing project of drinking all the IPAs. Every IPA that exists. Exactly. Uh, don't worry, not every show will be like this, but this show will be pretty IPA steeped. Um, and uh, you may know, if you're a frequent listener, that we've recently started an IPA leaderboard. Uh, and you can find it on the beginnerbrewer.com website uh, to go check out whether your favorite IPAs are there. If they're not, please drop us a line to tell us that we must review them. And yeah. uh, just to remind the, the listeners, right now, as of the day of recording, the I'll, I'll quickly read out the top three. Yes, so please, at number I don't one, know what they are. At number one is a little something-something. By Lagunitas. Yes, yeah, I forgot that Lagunitas is, is mm. the number one there, huh? Yeah, it's a, it's a white IPA. It's a Belgian style IPA. Lovely beer. I had it a couple of times since that particular mm. show. Um, so that's standing at a, at a, a healthy 8.75 overall rating. Then uh, number two is a South African one, Skeleton Coast by Jack Black. Mm hmm. At 8.5, and then at number three is another American contender by Stone Brewing, Ruination, which is a double IPA. Mm, mm. Those are solid picks. Those solid are solid picks. picks. We've, uh, you know, I don't know if I, don't know if I would change anything there. Well, it might change today, man. You never know. No, sure, sure. We've got a few but strong I, contenders here to uh, yeah. to see what can happen. Okay. Well, well, can we? Can can I drink something, please? I'm yes. getting quite thirsty. I do believe. That we have something called the intra beer thing. Yes, yes, intra beer, intra beer, intra beer. As ever, a very lovely rendition of that song. I've been practicing. <laughs> I've been I've been doing my vocal warm ups. I can see it. It shows, man. It really me, does. Me, 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 me. <laughs> oh boy! So, what our intra beer is for today is a really old favorite. An old um, favorite. I think we may even have had it as an interview before. I don't care. I like this. It doesn't beer. matter. And that is uh, Jack Black's Lumberjack Amber Ale. So we're going to open this up and we're going to try and get some. Uh, Matt's getting some oh, Foley. Oh, I forgot to Foley that. Sorry. Yeah, I've got no Foley. I, I opened it so professionally that it made no sound. I mean, we, we probably can review it sometime or another. Just for have we not reviewed complete Lumberjack? No, we haven't. Really? We just assume that everyone knows it's really good. But we probably should. I mean, I, we always try and sort of review newer beers, uh, I guess. Makes sense, to some extent. Uh, They're not beers uh, that have been around for a long time. Uh, fair enough. But uh, but Lumberjack is really a solid amber ale. Mm, it really is. Caramel, mm. toffee, colouring. And similar, similar on the nose. You, you get a lot of caramel and toffee on, on the aroma. Yeah. Beautiful red colour, as you would expect from a, an American amber style. Mm. And uh, generally, just uh, what a wonderful intro beer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you want me to talk about this or can I just drink it? You can talk about it if you want. Mm-mm. No, I'm too busy drinking it. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, such a super balanced beer. It's got a lot of caramel up front, a lot of maltiness, a lot of biscuit, and then a lot of really solid backbone of hops to, to complement that malt bill. Yeah. Yeah, what the nice thing is that you that your your upfront flavors are the caramel, and then that bitterness just washes that away at the very end, and it just finishes so nice and clean. Mm. 
And what's interesting is, I mean, we've recently reviewed the uh, the Cape Bale Ale uh, of the same brewery, and that one has less IBUs than than Lumberjack. Oh, really? Mm. Not, not by a great one. deal. Five five less, in fact. So, mm, so Lumberjack's got forty, yeah. and yeah, Bale Ale's got uh, thirty five. But it illustrates though why IBUs is only one, you know, part of the story of bitterness. Yeah, because it's also about the malts which you use to complement that, and the and the balance between those. You know, the, the 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 you can have so much caramel in here that it makes it impossible to swallow. Yeah, but but the but that balance makes it that each each taste is you know quite refreshing. Exactly, and I think that's actually the characteristic of a good amber. It's it's a refreshing yet complicated complex beer, mm. uh, which which has a lot of layering. But it, it's never cloying uh, in terms of the caramel flavors, nor is it IPA level kind of bitterness. Mm. Beautiful head. I mean, I've uh, you know not to give away too much about how much I drink, but I've stared at the lumberjack's head for many, many days. And um, we all know just, that you've got problems, man. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's just a, a beautiful beer to look at. You know, it's a mm. you get that kind of almost nitrogen-like um, foamy head, and it's I mean it's just really, really beautiful beer. You know, we don't get enough amber ales in this country. I think I was yeah. I was just about to ask you. You know, what what competition does Lumberjack have here, in from the amber ale side? Mm, not a lot. Um, certainly not in terms of the American amber ale style, which this is. Mm. Um, South Africans seem seem to the South African brewers tend to like the Irish red ale style, which is a very different style. It's much more malty. Mm. It's not hoppy at all. It's almost oh, Gil- Gilroy's does a, an Irish red, doesn't it? Yeah, Gilroy's does it. Um, Quite a number of uh, agars here in Joburg and a few oh, that's right, down yeah. the Cape as well. Um, I know Triggerfish does a reasonably good amber ale, which is in the American style, down there in um, near Strand. So, so there are a few, but not many, and it's a pity because I think it's a lovely style. It's it's something which is super food friendly, both in drinking or cooking with. How would you cook with this, Marcel? Oh, would you finish with it? Would you use it as like a stick uh, it in a sauce, man? Reduce it. Reduce, reduce it down. Yeah, no, you can I reduce suppose that, it. That those caramel flavors. You're probably getting a lot of um, kind of the sugar out of that. Yeah, and I mean, it, just as an accompaniment, obviously, as well. You know, anything which has caramelization, like your your barbecue type stuff, or bucket of bacon. Yeah, oh, it's, it just goes fantastically well with food. Mm. And it's complex say, actually, enough to stand up to pretty strong food as well. Mm. So I haven't if, had a lumberjack in a in a couple of months, mm. um, and it's it's evocative. It's as good as it's ever been, if not slightly better. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, we we are obviously hamstrung by the the supply side quality issues, mm. um, but coming out of a bottle and having it fresh like that, oh, loving. It. If you don't drink Jack Black, then fuck you. I think that's pretty much their marketing message. Um, I'm f- I don't know why they don't want to employ us as their marketing consultants, man. Yeah, well, come on, guys. What are you guys waiting I mean, for? We're reducing gold here, man. Gold. Is it is it just me, <laughs> or as this thing goes on, mm. is there a, a, a maybe a coffee aroma? Yeah, there's slightly, like, yeah. Slightly, I know, almost hazelnutty coffee aroma? Mm, there is slight, and I, I think that is... A common addition on a very small scale with an amber ale would be um, some kind of roasted malt or highly toasted malt like a coffee or you know one of those sort of darker malts or even a very dark crystal malt. 
Because uh, crystal malts obviously come in various uh, degrees of stewedness. Of, yeah, of maltiness. Yeah, you know, or, or kilnness. So it's uh, depending on how long you, you steal or kiln it for. It'll be darker, so it'll lend darker mm-hmm. colors. But another way, I mean, if you're a homebrew and you want to, you know, hit a, a really good um, combination of malts for an amber, and especially if you want to create that really red color, one way of doing it is to add a very small percentage of very dark malt like chocolate or coffee mm-hmm. um, or even roasted barley you can use, but then you have to be very careful. Um, and the combination of that very dark malt with a crystal malt creates a much more red color. Um, and obviously it, it does impart some sort of flavor profile to it as well, which is a smokiness, uh, slightly mm. more coffee flavors. Yeah, just that kind of malty aftertaste, you know. It's but, lovely. But you've got to be careful. I mean, you don't want that to dominate. Yeah. No, well, I mean, I haven't even noticed it until now, you know. No. I don't know if they're using it, but there's just a little touch at the very end. Well, I think in amber, you know, we often talk about what is the, you know, defining feature of a specific style of beer. And I think if, you, if you're picking up an amber ale, especially an American amber, is what you're looking for is that perfect synergy between crystal malts, you know, which is the sort of caramel toffee flavors and a lot of hops. And that's what you're aiming for. So it's really a showcase of your different uh, crystal malts and, and obviously some really nice citrusy American hops. Well, Lumberjack ticks the boxes for me. All right. Well, I've got a little bit of beer here. How about we start our draft, young man? I think so. That, um, through the uh, machinations of my random selection process, man, um, <laughs> yes, I've determined that you go first. I'll tumble forward and I try to stand on my own and at a drop of a I was going to say that your random machinations would just be you going, I pick me. <laughs> I'm a gracious host. Okay. Well, since it's a draft, we are probably supposed to start with our number one pick, correct? Well, it depends on your strategy. You know, you can go with that. That's a, that's no, you're a, right. You're right. Because, no, I mean, depends. in American football, they might, um, you know, swap their pick for a for two third round picks and okay all right there's, there's strategy you may and i mean before we get into it though i do have one question for you what was your overall sort of orientation towards creating this list i mean did you go in with a particular philosophy of how you would pick them so um i my 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 bookcases my bookshelves um i tend to collect all my sci-fi on in one general area and the most red ones tend to accumulate in one particular kind of set of shelves. Okay. So I went to those and I basically went, which ones changed my life? That's a big question. And that's, well, it was, it was easily answered because I've got a list of them. Nice. So this is yeah. life-changing fiction. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, when you're a weird, nerdy, kind of 12 to 17-year-old kid, um, these are the books that allow you to escape. Mm. You know, you know. I was also re- heavily reading fantasy at the same time, but they scratch different itches. You know, um, the, sci-fi to me has always been more thoughtful, uh, more about asking questions about the world we live in, and fantasy has always been more about escapism. I mean, those are very broad kind of ways to look at it, but th- that really is it for me. Mm. Um, so sci-fi was really—it's about making sense of this world that I'm in. That I don't perfectly understand and from what i can tell no one else does either um so my selection here really really talks to 
you know, the, the, the questions that you ask yourself about what is reality and and how do I survive in a world that is both hostile and impenetrable? Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, th- I think I'm very much in the same wheelhouse as you there with sci-fi. I mean, I, I've got a few picks on my list, though, which I'm a bit worried about, that it, it may it may have some uh, debate around whether that qualifies as sci-fi. So my list is not without controversy. I, I don't think that that is in itself a question that hasn't been asked before. You know, a lot of people, you know, if you're looking at books that don't even ha- don't even take place in outer space or have spaceships or something like that, but deal with philosophical questions about existence you know i think that hinges more on the sci-fi side than fantasy mm. that's sort of one of my criteria when i created my list i mean I, I also just went for i mean i can you know memorable points in my reading career you know where where i read sci-fi which really changed some kind of view of mm. mine or which convinced me about a particular way of writing um, yeah where i just yeah. really appreciated the writing style of an author or the the world they created yeah, yeah, very much so. Because I mean, the world building is a vital component of it. It's probably core. You know, it's it's if there's one really big distinction between speculative fiction, if I can use that larger frame. Yeah, bigger term. Yeah. It is the the centrality of world building. You know, if you mm. if you're writing within our current world, it's you're still building a particular view of the world, but you're not building a world out of nothing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's really you know, if if it holds the mirror up. And you and you look into the mirror and you see this bizarre reversal of existence. Then, in most cases, you're looking at a sci-fi book, you know. Yeah, agreed. Well, we'll we'll debate whether some of our picks are legitimate or not. I'm sure. But um, okay, well, let let me kick off. Yeah. Let me. I'm let nervous. Me I'm nervous for you to kick off because I well, suspect that I know what you're going to pick. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, I've got to go with the one that I know is going to be is going to be on your list. So well, maybe the same author, but I'm hoping you won't. You won't nail the same novel. Uh, okay. All right. Well, I my my first pick for our for our sci-fi books post Dune is Ian M. Banks. Mm-hmm. Use of weapons. Mm, no. You bastard. Sorry, Marcel. That's the I way. I cannot it is. believe that you picked that. No, I, I had to. It's that it's, is my number one too. Uh, I I assumed that it was, which is why I'm glad I went first. I was sort of thinking you were going to pick another one. So did you say so player of games? Yeah, that would that would that was my guess actually. Yeah, we were going to either go that or for the classic consider flippers. I, I feel I feel that use of weapons is a is a better book. You know, mm. you, a player of games is a fantastic story and it's and it's epic in scope and, and world building and wise also. Really world good. building is phenomenal. The game that they play is is just astonishing. But use of weapons is actually a very tight story. Um, from what I understand about the writing of it, is it was written. It was one of the first things he ever wrote. And then later in his career, he kind of, he reassessed it and, and rewrote the structure. And if anyone, you know, if you haven't read Use of Weapons, um, it, without giving too much away, it, mm. it has two um, timelines that run at the same time in alternating chapters, one starting at the beginning of the story and one starting at the end. And what you actually find at the end of the book is the middle of the story. Yeah. And it's a genius piece of structure that allows you to kind of get to the, the 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 climax of the story simultaneously from two directions and it's it's brilliant it's it's brilliant it is i mean i don't know it's, how much spoiler stuff you're going to include here for people who haven't uh, read it uh, yeah let's try and stay away from the big ones mm, i think let's stay away from the big one in use of weapons because that is yes. a big one it is a big one yeah but um but if you haven't read use of weapons and you haven't read ian and banks 
then yeah, you really do have to do that. And I think yeah. use of weapons is actually a good start because it's sort of in the center of of the yeah. oeuvre. Um, yes. It is set in the culture, which is a lot of his sci-fi novels are set in this sort of fictional universe of the culture, yeah. which is a post-scarcity, sort of highly liberal, interventionist type of uh, society. What do they call them? Gay space communists. <laughs> yeah, gay space communists. And yeah. they're run by artificial intelligences called minds who uh, sometimes inhabit orbitals or ships or whatever. And they sort of, you get the idea that the mind's going to keep the organic life uh, happy and well fed because they're amusing. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 they we, we kind of exist at their pleasure. You know? exactly. They, they, they could do whatever they wanted. I mean, minds in a different book they explain that minds have got an entire different universe that they can go into, which I think they call happy fun world. Yes, yes, where they um, recreate physical laws and exactly play exactly. around. I mean, and it's brilliant. They, they only really play in ours because it's fun, you know. So um, yeah, and and there's also an altruism. You know, I think that in in Banks's worlds, um, it's been decided or understood that looking after everybody, you know, having this kind of communist viewpoint in a post-scarcity society makes perfect sense because everyone looks after each other, not for mm. commercial reasons, but because it's it's humanistic, you know? mm. which is a weird trait to ascribe to to what is technically like four-dimensional computers, but but that's, that's technically it. Well, I think Banks is certainly of the sci-fi authors who have a, a certain optimism about the future um, in the sense that, that we, you know, the culture is a society which eventually kind of figures things out, that they, they, they've banished things like poverty and misery yeah. to a large extent in their society. I think he sees, you know, the, the culture is us in 5,000 or 10,000 years. Oh, yeah. I think that's his, that was his hope for, for, for us. It remains mine. It remains mine as well. It remains mine as well. Right, let's get to your first draft pick. Well, I, I'm a little bit gutted now, um, to be quite honest with you. I, I really was Suck hoping up, that uh, this is the last time you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I choose. So it's a difficult one. It's a very difficult one. I mean, I could obviously go and pick another Ian Banks, and there is there are more than a few, actually, uh, mm, yeah. uh, on the list. But I'm going to pick one which it's a little bit uh, lesser known, um, but it's a, it's one of, apart from the Yin and Banks books and a few others like Dune, probably one of the sci-fi books I've returned to more often than not. And it's by an author called Greg Bear. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure he's on your list. Yeah, he is. But I'm pretty sure this novel is not the one you would pick for him. Okay. And that is The Anvil of Stars. You're right. That isn't the one I would have picked. Mm, I think you're still a phenomenal one. book. Beautiful book. I mean, he's more well-known for some of his other sci-fi books, which could be on our list to come. But Anvil of Stars, beautiful book. It's sort of a it's a sequel, actually, to, to the first one, which is called The Forge of God. That's right. And it, it's sort of set in a, in a universe where the Earth has been destroyed and by some alien race. And these kids basically set out in a starship run by also artificial intelligence, I guess, in, in order to try and figure out who did it and to kind of take revenge. it's On some level, it's a revenge novel, but a very sophisticated form of revenge and a very interesting, um, you know, meditation on humanity and our place in the universe. Yes. I, I remember also that the it, it's, it's one of the earliest books that deal with 
the kind of disaster of self-replicating machines. Yes. Of uh, von Neumann kind of machines, you know, the automata that can make more of itself. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And, I mean, it's a, it's a common theme throughout sci-fi. I mean, Ian and Banks also deals with it. They call it grey or grey goo. Grey goo, grey goo. That's mm. right. Yeah. The eventual outcome of everything is the re- reduction to nanomachines. Yeah. Um, and Greg Bear deals with it. And I think also what I love about this book is it, it, like many good sci-fi novels, it creates this internal dialogue and internal world, which is so believable. And it sort of uses familiar terminologies in, a, in an interesting way. Um, so, for instance, one which I remember and I'll never forget is, is the, the, the boys and the girls in, on the ship are called different things. So the boys are known as Christopher Robbins. Um, you know, after the sort of poo, you know, classic. And and I like that about good sci-fi. They sort of appropriate old-fashioned words and terms and, and in a new way. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of familiar stuff from a world which they've left behind. Mm. Um, it's a it's very poignant. It's it's quite a sad story, I think. Yeah, yeah. It is. It, yeah, yes, yeah. There's, it, I mean, it, there's probably a bittersweet ending. Yeah, you know? very much. But Greg Bear is good at that. He's really good at creating those sort of complex emotional, um, you know, compositions. Mm-hmm. Greg Bear is also, you know, I would term him as as very much more on the hard sci-fi, you know, mm. um, where he deals very well with tech, with very, very difficult technological concepts uh, and the philosophy around those. You know, it's it, it's not just about world building, it's also about the science. Oh, yeah. The, the sort of uh, denouement of the novel really revolves around a very scientifically complex solution to a Correct. problem these characters face. Correct, yeah. Um, which, which obviously took quite a bit of research on Greg Bear's, uh, you know, part. And, I mean, in contrast, Ian M. Banks is more sort of space opera. He hand waves yes. through a lot of the uh, the science yes. stuff. Yes, exactly. It exists, so take it from there, mm. you know. Yeah, Which I'm, is I'm, also okay in itself. You know, I read a lot of um, Peter F. Hamilton, who is, you know, probably the best space operist writing today. Mm. And the, you you don't need to ask further questions. You know, take it for as a as a fact that this thing exists and it's a deus ex machina and it's going to work this way and you do. You kind of go, okay, cool, I'll move on. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, if you do it well, it, and, and Ian M. Banks does it masterfully as well, is that it comes across as kind of scientifically informed. Exactly. Well, because um, I think the way Ian M. Banks does it is he's just, he makes the assumption that you have made the assumption that it works. Yes. He doesn't, um, he's, you know, he's like, it, it works, go for it. Mm. So that's my pick. Okay. Great beer, Lovely. Anvil of Stars. You're, you've Lovely. got use of weapons. You, yeah. you yes, so and so. Yes, I do. So, should we do one more before our first beer? Let's do one more. Um, okay. Your turn again. I can't wait okay. to see what other wonderful book you're going to grasp away from me. So, I'm going to choose one that is on that controversial list of the of the mm. kind of boundaries between sci-fi and fantasy but i is this going to be a book by an author who have has a royal surname no oh no no i don't think so unless it's in a different language okay go ahead but then but after i tell you you're gonna have to explain what you meant by that Mm. um no i'm gonna choose slaughterhouse five by kurt vonnegut ah that's a good one i don't think Um, that's controversial at all i mean it's a time travel story 
Sure, but it's a, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of how way I feel about it. But I do know a lot of people think that because it's so, uh, it's it's more esoteric than it is sci-fi. You know, it's yeah. it's such a human story. I mean, and, it doesn't do magic and, realism at all. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that the sci-fi elements, while while you know quite overt, are also seen as more uh, analogies than they are as fundamental parts of the storyline but mm. nevertheless i believe that it is a sci-fi book um it it does hold a, an enormous mirror up to humankind um and i think that it's probably one of those books that when i finished it devastated me yeah. you know it's one of those books that you cannot believe that you have are no longer in the story and all you want to do is get back into that world. Mm. Unfortunately, they stay in that world with these subsequent novels as well, like uh, Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast of Champions, yeah. It's a yeah. wonderful novel. I'm, I'm, I'm saddened that I didn't actually add it to my list. And, and perhaps it's because Vonnegut is sort of that interstitial author between what would nowadays yeah. be referred to as literary and sci-fi. Absolutely. I mean, look, look at a book like Cat's Cradle, which has a very fundamental sci-fi... Uh, kind of crux to the story, you know, but everything that happens around that is happening in our world. It's happening. It could happen right now. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, he's a, he's a very strange author. And, and I think that's where his brilliance comes from is that he straddles those lines so brilliantly that you actually aren't able to make out the marks. And he's just an excellent author. You know, I, you get the idea that anything he was going to write in his life was going to be really good and worth reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Kurt Vonnegut probably had the biggest heart out of any human being that's ever been born. And um, mm. I think the, the world is poorer for not having him in it. Yeah, and I think next to the word mensch in the uh, Yiddish dictionary, yeah. there's a picture yeah. of that man. There's a, a wild-haired Kurt Vonnegut sitting yeah. there. Good pick, okay. man. Thank you. All right, give me your give me your second-round pick. Well, mine, mine is distinctly less literary, although recently this author has been uh, recognized as being part of the great uh, tradition of, uh, you know, wordsmiths. Okay. And this is one of my controversial ones because it sort of borders on fantasy, I think. And that is uh, Stephen King and uh, The Gunslinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, I would argue yeah, it is sci-fi. I would also argue that it's sci-fi. I also believe that it's sci-fi. Um, I mean, it eventually I, has robots and AI and all sorts of yeah. stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah. Was it was uh, Stephen King the the royal yeah, reference yeah. you were making? Okay, I'm glad I didn't steal another one from you. I'm really good. Look, I'll be honest with you. I actually don't read Stephen King. I'm I'm not a Stephen King fan. I've read The Gunslinger and I've read a couple of the other ones. The you know the other kind of the Dark Tower trilogy or quadrology or whatever it is now. Um, I've I've I, I do enjoy those works of his, but I've never enjoyed any of the other ones. Mm. Look, Stephen King is very much a polarizing uh, author. You know, some people love him, some people don't. I think Dark Tower stands in the center of that because it's so different from his other work that mm. even if you you think you know Stephen King and you haven't read Dark Tower, you should read it because it's not like his other work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very very different story, a very very different book, and it's written quite differently. Mm. Um, to to his horror stuff. Yeah, I mean this this for me is is another memory kind of novel in the sense that I remember reading it. I remember mm. the mood it created inside of me when I read it. It took me to a very different world, and innovative. You know, for me the innovation there was he created a world which was sort of half sci-fi, half western, 
Mm. There was a little bit of horror, a little bit of fantasy. Mm. Yeah, I, and a I've lot never of the, seen the, anyone the do that. tropes as well. Yeah, it was like a, you just completely disregarded all the rules, you know, where, I mean, if you look at Greg Bear's novel, it's mm. very much set in a sci-fi world and it has certain tropes which we're familiar with. Where yeah. when you read Dark Tower, you kind of, it's a, it's a wild ride because none of the tropes, none of the rules seem to apply. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, okay, I fully agree with that particular choice. Good. Well, I think it's Good. time for an IPA. I'd love an IPA. What so, are we starting with, Marcel? So we're going to revisit a, a beer we were not too kind uh, with the first time we tasted. Yeah. In fact, it was yeah. perhaps the beer which sparked the now famous and trademark <laughs> term. Faux PA. Which is faux PA. <laughs> trademark 2020. Mm. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of this beer since then. I'm, I, I might add. I'm, uh, I'm, I, that's interesting because I'm. I haven't. The last time I had this beer was when you and I reviewed it. Oh, really? Mm. I, I I received basically a case of it for my birthday last oh. year, so I, I I kind of made my way through that. Should we tell the listeners what this beer is? Uh, yes, please do. So this is by the Red Rock Brewing Company, and it is their Firebird. IPA. The Firebird. And last time we reviewed this, we, we really were unimpressed, to say the least. It, it really didn't taste like an IPA or even an APA or even a, mm-hmm. a PA. <laughs> <laughs> an A. Or an A. Um, and so, but I thought that, you know, we should revisit it because that was a long time ago. Um, we're actually, uh, another beer we're going to be reviewing today is also a, a second rendition of a beer we've already reviewed. Yeah. Uh, for different reasons. A, a remix. Yeah, um, because it's a seasonal, I think it makes sense yeah. to, to taste different seasons. Yeah. Um, Firebird is not a seasonal. It's it's a, uh, you know, one of their production beers. It's a cornerstone beer for them. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. I am I am nervous because I, uh, you may not be aware of this, dear listener, but I'm not really very fond of having a bad beer review in the mm. show. Um, I prefer telling you about good beer to drink, but... But let me not uh, preface this yeah, too don't, much. Yeah, don't don't spice the conversation before we have it. Yeah. Okay. So this is part of our IPA off. Uh, it's going to go into the list. What do you think of the branding, Matt? Um, I don't mind Red Rocks branding. I think it's a bit derivative. It's a you know it's a, it's a little bit throwaway, but at least they're relatively consistent. All of their um, all of their brands. Um, they've got a Stormrider Pilsner, Rusty Trigger Lager. Um, there's a Vice Bad Moon. They've got a, an Ale Nine Inch. All all of them have followed the same motifs, you know, in terms of the mm. branding. And I don't, you know, that's definitely not the worst branding I've ever seen. Um, it's a it's little clean. bit. You can say that about. It. Hey. It's very clean. The branding. It, it's it is very clean. I like the fact that on the, the that their back label is is quite full of information. Um, it kind of there's a there's a lot of stuff there for me to read, which is quite cool. Mm. Um, they, they're quite active on social media, which is cool. Yeah. Um, Still not enough uh, beer geek information for me, so there's no I'd mention like to of see IBUs, or IBUs gravity, like yeah. hop varietals. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like uh, one thing I, I very much like is that their bottles are all they've got that uh, Red Rock Company embossing on the actual glass. That is nice. I mean, I think which, it's it's a dual edged sword for me. You know, from a consumer point of view, I do also enjoy that. If you're a home brewer, you hate these bottles because you can't use – well, you shouldn't can't be use using them. Again. them. <laughs> I mean, okay, some well, home brewers don't give a damn and they just – they'll bottle their beer and anything. But, I mean, if you take pride 
in your homebrew. Mm. You should be bottling it in a, you know, unbranded bottle. I am, um, yeah, I, I like it from a consumer point of view. You're mm. absolutely right. I don't care about reusing the bottle. I think the bottles themselves are lovely. Oh. Uh, I, I really, really like the bottles that they use. And the, like I say, the branding is not bad. I they got cap the, art as well. Yes, they do, which you don't see a hell of a lot of. And That's I actually have a whole bunch of these caps yeah. lying around. Kudos. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the branding is okay. The branding is okay. I, I hate, I don't know if they put the sticker on or the distributor that we bought it from put the sticker on, but a giant thing that tells me that this is an easy IPA. Mm, scary already. Yeah, that doesn't instill very much kind yeah. of like hope in me for the flavor inside. You know, it's kind of like the Coke on the side of the bottle going, you know, less sugar. All right, thank you for telling me what I'm going to expect before I expect it. You know? Not only that, I mean, look, in, in the IPA off, we are non-discriminatory about the, the different kinds of IPA. We, we are going for a, for a sort of a raw, here's the best IPAs we can drink rating. Mm. And we already have a number of different sub-styles of IPA on the list. Now... I mean, this would probably be then a session IPA. Not that it's an official style yet uh, with, with the, you know, star police. But, um, you know... It, but, but the implication is that it's a... You could have four or five of these and it'll be okay. Sure, but I think still, even if you say it's an easy or a session IPA, it must still be an IPA. And for me... Uh, 100%. 100%. IPA is all about the hops, right? It's a showcase yeah, sure. of hops. It should really punch you in the face with hop flavor, if not bitterness. Um, session IPAs tend to have lower alcohol levels and less bitterness, but mm. they should still have a lot of hop flavor, more so than a, a blonde ale or a American pale ale. But then, what's the what is the marketing thinking behind a sticker that tells you it's an easy IPA? Are they are they is there a segment of the South African market that is is looking for unchallenging IPAs? Probably, I mean, and I think it's still that old thing of there's a lot of South African uh, beer fans out there who pretty much want a lager or something which tastes like a light lager and so they they reluctant to try and use styles which are not like that mm, okay. but, but i would also argue that you know it's it's based on i mean being a little bit involved in the marketing world of beer in south africa myself it's often founded on a complete and utter misunderstanding of the target market and in fact no data you know it's not like these people are basing their decisions on research yeah um and so there's this assumption amongst south african brewers i think sometimes which Unfounded, I think, that this yeah. African palate cannot possibly handle a full-flavored, highly hop beer. You know, that it must yeah. it must veer close to a lager or it just won't sell. Yeah. I, th- I think the technical term for that sort of belief is bullshit. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Because but, I mean, we're not I any different from any other country. That I don't see any session IPAs needing to put stickers on the side of the bottle that, that, that necessarily markets the fact that this is an easier IPA. Isn't that mm. something that you will discover through your love of drinking IPAs? Yeah, look, I think I think this this shows us the assumptions built into this marketing is is they are worried that people are not going to buy an IPA because they think it's going to be too bitter, mm. uh, too flavorsome. I don't know. It's weird. Mm. I don't agree with it. I think it's not founded in any kind of real reality. Um, but uh, there you go. I mean, I think the problem also is with the brewer sometimes. You know, if your brewer comes from a macro brewery <coughs> background. No. They worried about using no. too much hops and stuff, so they they have their own biases. Sure. Okay. Well, let's pour this. Let's pour it. I yet again failed to get any foley. I'm pouring. I've got to get some foley. So I'm rocking some cool glassware today. Are you uh, pouring it in anything interesting there? 
Um, I'm pouring it in a Deutsche Schule zu Johannesburg Windhoek Beer Bazaar 1998 glass. <laughs> okay. What, what, what is that, man? What foreign language doth you speak? <laughs> it's uh, the German school beer fest, which used to take place, or possibly still takes place every year. Um, but it was a rite of passage for us growing up. So mm. I have about 40 glasses from there. Yeah, no, I've, I've got fond memories and non-memories from those festivals. Yes, yes, vague gaps. Yeah. Okay, so I've, I've got my goblet out here, uh, kind of a Belgian goblet. I thought, what the hell? Uh, also clear, very clear. Yes, clear. Not doesn't look like super carbonated. Not super carbonated. Uh, sort of also straw to slight uh, golden color. What are you getting on the nose there? Not a lot. Uh, interesting for an IPA. Not a lot of aroma. Not a lot at all. I'm starting to get afraid again. But let's no, no, let's no. Let's, no, no, no. let's give it a shot. Be, be yeah. Be firm. Stand firm. Yeah, I'm actually getting no aroma. Is that possible? There must be something. Or is my on. nose malfunction? Maybe the head is too dense. I mean, there's a nice head. There's a nice head. A uh, um, nice creamy, quite loose head. Yeah, I'm getting maybe, maybe, maybe a tiny bit of kind of a bit of citrus. That's mm. very, very in the background. Mandarin-y, mandarin orange. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I'm. There's, it's certainly not overwhelming me. Okay, so let's let's taste this bad boy and uh, see if it's different from what we remember. At least from what I remember. So based on my memory of this beer, I mean, it certainly is more bitter. I, I'll give it that. It's um, it's it's more bitter. Um, but is it more bitter, man? <laughs> see what I did there? Okay, and yes, I do see it. It was very clever. You must you must feel great. I do. Um, I am um, look. I I believe that it has that is it is better than the one we originally tasted. I, d I still struggle to see where the IPA is in this. Yeah. I'm, I'm still really, I'm not getting any of the hallmarks of what I would want to get out of any IPA. Um, I can taste bitterness. It's a very thin bitterness. Um, there isn't very much kind of complexity to the flavor. There's sort of a, a vegetative uh, kind of bitterness for me. Uh, you know what I associate with very yeah. harsh kind of South African hops, maybe, which you use in a bittering uh, kind of approach. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's not a session IPA for me, really. I mean, we've had session IPAs on the show, uh, which were both more accessible and more IPA. Um, yeah. I, I recall, for instance, the the go to IPA by Stone, mm. which which we, we, yeah, didn't, exactly. we weren't that fond of, but it was still obviously an IPA. Yeah. This doesn't this, have any of the hallmarks of an IPA. It doesn't have no. the hallmarks of anything, really. It's very insipid, really, and very hard bitterness with very little flavor attached to it. I mean, I've tasted blonde ales, which are more hoppy than this. Um, certainly tasted a whole bunch of APAs, which are way hoppier than this. Yeah. And has a better kind of balance between malt and hops. It's. I mean, it's actually very much kind of in lager territory. You know, it's there's mm. just a flatness to it with no complexity. I mean, they mentioned the use of Belgian malts. Um, it could be there. I mean, there's certain, I mean, certain biscuity flavors here which come out if you linger with it. But it's, it's as an IPA, which is supposed to showcase hops, I think it's still, it hasn't sh shaken its faux PA status for me. I don't know about you, Matt. You're the inventor of that term. 
Uh, it hasn't. No, well, I, my, my issue now is that they've made a better beer and made it less of an IPA. So I, I can't even ascribe. No, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I can't even ascribe FOPA to it. It's, I, I can't. I could probably drink this, Marcel, if I didn't know what it was. If it had no label on it and mm. they gave it to me and said, here's, here's a beer, I would drink and go, this beer doesn't make me upset. But I would argue that is a FOPA then, you know, because a FOPA is, for me, is, is something which claims to be what it is not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, it, then it's squarely in that territory. I mean, FOPA aren't bad territory. beers necessarily. It's mislabeled beers, or it's yeah, it's uh, bad yeah. marketed, or it's uh, yeah. I think you know when we when we kind of coined the term, the the question was, did it have, was it even reaching in the direction of an IPA, you know? And this, I can't see it. You no. Know, I don't. I don't. I don't. I just don't get it. It's very strange. And I mean, I think if you compare it to some of the other beers, so I recently had some of their nine inch ale again, which is a nice beer, I think. The nine inch, the nine inch is actually a solid beer. Mm. I, I, you know, I, I've had also quite a bit of that over the last couple of months. Yeah. And and I really and and that's uh, you know, it it that does the job that it kind of explains on the label. Mm. Um, but I think that beer is no more or less bitter than this beer, which is a problem because the nine inch ale is more of a British pale ale. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I think there's, the 9 inch has definitely got a, a complexity to it that this doesn't have. Mm. Which is fine if you have a low complexity multiple in your IPA, but then you use that yeah. to be a showcase for the hops because that's yeah. a, a legitimate strategy in a good IPA. Yeah, sure. Look, uh, uh, Red Rock talk about they use a, a hop gun and it extracts the maximum aromatics for a hoppy sensation of perfect bitterness. I call but BS not, on them, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not getting a hoppy sensation. I'm, I'm not, not getting maximum aromatics. I'm not <laughs> getting any of that. No, because a hop gun is something you, you use to add late hop um, additions to your beer. So it, it would often, a hop gun would often sit in your, you know, somewhere between your kettle and your whirlpool, between your whirlpool and your fermenter or your chiller. To And you use a lot of sometimes fresh hops or you can also use pelletized hops. And it's meant to be a way to boost the hop flavors and aromatics very dramatically without adding bitterness. Yeah, Now, absolutely. that, again, is a very sophisticated, legitimate strategy for a session IPA. But this ain't it. But that, so my question is, if they are doing all the things that they put into their marketing, and I've no, no reason to believe that they aren't, then why are they spending this enormous amount of time and money on these things when it's not coming out in their beer? You know, and that, that's what worries me is the sense that IPA has become a bit of a thing, right? South African beer drinkers are beginning to drink more IPAs. They know it's a thing in craft beer. I mean, the IPA style is perhaps the most iconic style in the craft beer movement because it differs so substantially from things like light lagers. And I can't help but wonder whether this is not just really a way for them to try and at least have an IPA. You know, like we have an IPA no. like everybody else. Yeah, but if you're not willing weird. to create an IPA, why not just remove it from your stable and create other beers? You don't need an IPA. You really don't. You don't need an IPA. I mean, I'd be very interested to find out how this sells and who it's selling to and whether those people know that you know that a lager exists. Mm. Because you know? lagers that, are actually very hoppy beers in and of themselves. Exactly, exactly. Or that they could have the nine inch, which is a far more fundamentally better drinking experience mm. and complex drinking experience than than the Firebird is. Yeah, it's a disappointment. I I was sort of ex because I haven't drunk it since our last review. I was mm. almost expecting to be wowed and and kind of have to recant my previous views. Uh, Unfortunately, not. No. Yeah. Look again to reiterate, there are no flaws in this beer. 
It's a well-constructed beer from a technical point of view, but it's not an IPA. It's not a session IPA as far as I'm concerned. And you can't hide behind this thing of saying it's an easy IPA because yeah. you're, still, you're still promising something by labeling it an IPA. Mm. And if you don't yeah. deliver on that promise, then I'm going to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I mean, disappointing. Where, what do you score this, Marcel? Well, uh, Matt, I, not surprisingly perhaps, this is going to get to the bottom of the pile for me. I'm going to give it our lowest rating yet for an IPA and an IPA leaderboard, and I'm going to give it a two. Mm. Um, if I was to rate this as a beer, I would give it a five. If I was to rate this as an IPA, I'm giving it a two. Yeah, I mean, it, it escapes one territory because it's not flawed or anything. And, yeah. and I, I do think Red Rock has a very competent brewer behind it who doesn't create any flawed beers. And that in alone contributes to the quality of craft beer in South Africa. Yeah. So kudos to them. But as an IPA, I would guess again, um, it's a two for me. And my advice would be, you know, in as much as people obviously, you know, can't wait to hear our advice on things, man. Um, <laughs> They're on the edge of their seat. And shape their entire lives based on it. They have their vibrators ready, just waiting for oh, the yeah. words of wisdom to pour um, out of your mouth. But I, I'd, I'd really recommend just pulling it, you know, relabeling it, calling it something else. Call it something else, absolutely. You absolutely. Know, if I knew, if I didn't see that this was an IPA, I could drink this. I could be like, okay, cool. I know what I'm in for. This is great. If, if they said this is a Blondale, for instance, I'd, I'd have a yeah. high, much higher rating. Yeah, I really wanted them to be better. I've had a lot of their nine inch, and I think the nine inches is a supreme beer for drinkability. I'm sure you've had all the nine inches, man. Marcel, <laughs> my mother listens to this podcast. Uh, of course she does, man. <laughs> Hi, Mom. You mean she tells you that she listens to it? Yes, I know. She isn't able to actually tell me anything that's inside the podcast. But... <laughs> exactly. All right. Shall we move on, Marcel? Let's move on to, shall we do another draft pick? Mm. Yes, let's. Uh, I believe it's my turn. Um, I am going to choose a, a book that literally changed my life. And I believe that it changed a lot of people's lives. And I also believe that it actually invented a genre of fiction. Okay. I'm, I'm going with Neuromancer by William Gibson. Nice. Yeah, the father of cyberpunk. The father of cyberpunk. Um, it's just a, it's, it's iconoclastic. It's been referenced a billion times. Um, it, uh, the world building is, you know, the closer we get to the future, the more Neuromancer becomes basically, you know, the news. Mm. Um, it's, it's just a brilliant work. Look, if you could find some faults with it, it might be in the characterization. He's not necessarily super interested in people's motivations, um, but it's hard to kind of overlook the fact that the the, the, the culture that he creates. Um, and I'm also a fan of his later books. I, I love Virtual Light, uh, which is one of my favorite books because it touches on you know themes of architecture and and celebrity. Mm. Um, I think he's a brilliant author when he, you know, but his world world building is 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 astonishing. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my draft pick. Good pick. Um, now it's difficult to fault William Gibson. I mean, he did create an entire genre. Yeah. And a lot of subsequent novels would not be possible, I don't think, if he didn't come along. Yeah, absolutely. And incredibly prescient about the incorporation of technology with everyday life. Absolutely, absolutely. I think he saw the, you know, the information explosion, the digital highway for what it was a good 10 years before anyone else did. 
Agreed. That's the, the sign of a visionary, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, my next pick is difficult. I've got one which is not an obvious pick, and then I've got a more obvious pick. And uh, because you sniped my Yen and Banks pick, I feel almost mm-hmm. obligated to pick another one uh, from uh, that author. Okay. okay I good. think I will. So my, my next pick is, again, it's not necessarily one of his more popular books. Um, it's not Player of Games, even though that would be an obvious choice for me, and it, it's definitely on my list. Um, but my other favorite of his is Looking to Windward. Looking to Windward. Beautiful book. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book by Ian M. Banks. Yeah. Banks that is more thoughtful. Yeah, and it, it incorporates a really cool trope, which I've always enjoyed in sci-fi, which is the 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 mind inside the mind. So so the main character has a secret, and I'm not giving away the plot by revealing this because it's in the yeah. first few pages, but it's it's basically the main character has a consciousness uploaded into her. Yes, um, of another person who then becomes like a companion to in the story, and I just love that conceit, you know, of, of creating two minds inside one who, who you know, constantly have this sort of conversation and stuff, and it's it's really cool. It's it's a beautiful book. It's um, you know, I say it's Banks that is more thoughtful because I think he, you know, he, he's often at his best when he's dissecting philosophical terms. In a in this world that he's created, and mm. I think Look to Windward does it so well. Agreed, and and also like a lot of his narratives are around political issues. So so Banks does a lot of thinking around things like genocide and what does it mean to be a society and and bigotry and those things. He really contemplates those things very philosophically, um, in as much as you can in a sci-fi novel. Yeah, and I think Looking to Windward for me was one which was much more explicitly political in that way. And yes. and I think he asked the question of, you know, if you've got this perfect society, which is the culture, you know, post-scarcity, liberal, yeah. humanistic, what would it take to push them to a point where mm. they would doubt their own beliefs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, see, the, the, the other side of that kind of question is that the, the, the political view of this book, it, 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 you're rewarded by having read a large portion of NM Banks because it touches on a lot of the things that have happened in other books. You know, not, not that you'll be confused without reading it, but you get a, a, a sense of the subtlety involved in that politics. Mm. Um, you know, it refers to a war that, that's been ongoing through NM Banks in the background of the culture stories for a while. Um, and, you know, and he just, it's these little throwbacks that are just so brilliant and so unnecessarily beautiful you know it's it's just it's just excellent yeah so it's a wonderful read it's probably apart from i mean i I don't reread use of weapons as much um or as many times as i would the other books um because of there is a sort of a a twist which kind of you know if you if you you know the twist it does defeat the book a little Yes, yeah, you know it's coming. But I think other than Player of Games, I think the book I reread most of Ian and Banks is this one. Uh, it's, it's, it's a brilliant choice. It's a brilliant choice. I, I'm also, I, I think it's probably a nice choice because it's also not most people's favorite Ian M. Banks. Mm. You know, it's a much more personal story and a lot of people look at the scale of Banks and that's what they like. Um, and Look to Windward is a little bit more personal, a little bit more introspective. Yeah, it's a good one. What's yours, man? What's your next one? Um, which one am I going to go with? I, I'm going to choose one that I think it won like, I think it won every award that they give out for books. That's always a good sign. Yeah, I think they could run like Nebula, Hugo, Satins, and won everything. Um, and the, he's not a prolific author. I think he's only done five or six books, two of which were sequels to this one. 
Um, it's The Forever War by Joe Holderman. Ah, uh, what a wonderful pick. Which is, you know, the, the for, for people who haven't read The Forever War, the basic notion was Joe Holderman came back from Vietnam and, you know, he felt separated from society. Mm. And the way that he is able to explain that in sci-fi terms is through the concept of how, you know, light speed and how far you go at the speed of light means that time is different for you to the people you left, you left behind. Yeah. And he returns to Earth after fighting this war millions of light years away, and he comes back, and it's thousands of years later. And very much like the Vietnam veterans coming back to an America they didn't recognize, the protagonist comes back to this to, to Earth, and he doesn't recognize society anymore. He doesn't recognize the culture that he's living in. And he's only really comfortable going off and fighting wars a thousand light years away. Yeah. And that main conceit of the book is one of the most brilliant little tiny excellent metaphors that I've ever read. You know, it hit when mm. you when you realize it, when you realize what he's doing, it's a punch to the gut. And what an excellent metaphor for the you know, the fertility of war. I mean, I think he takes it to the nth degree because the reasons the war existed to begin with are often totally absent by the time these people come back. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. They, they don't know. even know what they're fighting for anymore. Exactly. And and also by the way, just from a pure science fiction point of view, one of the very few novels I've picked up which really deals with time dilation in a meaningful way. In a in a proper way, yeah. 100%. A, a common conceit obviously is it's too complicated to think about. So you kind of yeah. hand wave it away and you do faster than light travel and there you go. Yeah. But if you really think about the true implications of time dilation, it's so bizarre. And and Haldeman's book mm you know deals with it yeah there's you know there's there's a very incredible passage of the book where he he kind of gets back to earth after one of the campaigns and it it basically is explained to him that by the time he's gotten back they have already you know the war's finished yeah you know he it, it, it was basically pointless for him to go in the first place uh, and 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 that has such brilliant parallels to the wars that we fight where you know, some people sit on islands fighting for 50 years after the end of the war, mm-hmm. not even knowing that it's finished. It's a wonderful book. So, I mean, so, if you yeah. haven't read Haldeman's, and he, he wrote other books set in that universe as well, but this one is the, the best one. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. It's a brilliant book. And, you know, for a, for a reasonably liberal person who, who's relatively anti-war, there is, there's no better screed to, to kind of hang your liberal opinions on than, than the forever war. Yeah, and and also I think uh, I think the first military sci-fi book we've uh, drafted. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Unless someone else is going to pull out Starship Troopers, eh? It's, uh, it, I will reveal that it's yeah, on my list, yeah, but it's yeah. deep down on my list. Okay, just checking. Probably won't get okay. to today. Okay, your one. Okay, so mine is by another big name in sci-fi. It was published in 1992, which was a year which I remember reading a whole bunch of sci-fi. I've pretty much exhausted my local library. Pretty, pretty slow, section. yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is by Vernon, Verna Vinge, A Fire Upon the Deep. Oh, Fire Upon the Deep. What an incredible book. You've stolen one from my list. Excellent. I'm very happy You've to hear that. You've stolen one from my list. <laughs> Another space opera, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and in some ways, I think I read Vinge before I read Ian M. Banks. Um, but he, he was a good you know, prep for Ian M. Banks's worlds because he, he meditates upon very similar themes, mm. um, albeit mm. in a completely different way. And 
I just remember reading that thing and it just blew my mind. I mean, it, it's so many cool. It was like Vinge is one of these authors who have about 50 good ideas before the first chapter. Yeah, exactly. He has exactly. no problem in. So, so in let's explain up, the, 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 the main concept of the book, yeah. right? Which is, which is, which in itself is a masterstroke of genius. It is. And it's not a spoiler because, again, it's, it's not right a spoiler. There in the beginning. You, you find this out at the very beginning, all right? Yeah. And the main concept is that the closer you get to the galactic center, mm. Because it's because there's more mass, you travel more slowly. That's yeah. basically it. So, sublight communications, you can't reach faster than light travel, all these kind of things. And as you mm. get to the fringes of the galaxy, as you get further up, you know, as he terms it, you're able to then have faster than light communications. You're then mm. able to travel faster than the speed of light. And the discrepancy between the, these different areas in the galaxy or the universe is what creates a lot of the friction in the storyline. And that is, mm. it's, it's, it's a genius, genius concept. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think the, and Earth is sort of stuck in one of these interstitial spaces called slow zones. Yes. Where faster than light travel and communication is impossible. And, and if, you're a, if you're in a civilization which can travel faster than light and are part of, you know, you're part of this galactic civilization, one of your greatest fears is through failure of equipment or whatever, yeah. Poor navigation is to end up in one of these zones because then you're kind Slow of fucked. Zone, yeah. You can't get out, right? It'll take yeah. you years to get out, and and yeah. so civilizations which are stuck in the slow zone are like the, you know, they're really stuck in the sticks. Yeah, again, you know, brilliant analogies to be drawn, you know, between that kind of concept and and you know and modern life in terms of mm. our our dependence on on telecommunications and our dependence on the global village. It's just. Uh, just a brilliant concept. Yeah. Brilliant concept. I love that book very, very much. And another cool concept, which I think Ian M. Banks has similar riffs on, is that if you if you move outside of the the galaxy into the you know outside part of the galaxy, you automatically transcend. So you become this yeah. super intelligent being, and similar to to Ian M. Banks's ideas of civilizations which have um, have left, you know, sublimated or left, sublimated. Yeah, that's the term he uses. Yeah. Um, so very similar authors in some ways, but only in concept. I think in writing, very different. Werner Vinge, very much in his style of writing, reminds me of the golden age of sci-fi. It's a very, it's oh, yeah. much more pulpy. It's much more, um, you know, Buck Rogersy orientated. Mm. But his concepts are so modern, and it's that juxtaposition that's brilliant. It's a brilliant, yeah. I mean, you could be forgiven to think that he is a golden age author. A golden age. I, I, I swear, you know, I read, I read Vinovich when probably, like you say, in the nineties, and I thought it was an old book. Mm. You know, I thought it was contemporary with Alfred Bester, and you know, back then. Oh, Lim. But it's, but it wasn't. It was right. It was, it was brand new. Yeah. Oh, cool. Lo- lovely choice. Lovely choice. We're uh, covered some good fiction, and I think it's time for some more good beer. Please, please, Marcel, please. Well, being an IPA off episode, I thought it's only fair that we go into some of the seasonal uh, mm. examples on our list. Mm. So we have already reviewed Jack Black's Fresh Hop IPA, but that was the 2019 expression. Was that only a year ago? It's only a year ago. Uh, we reviewed no. it in December of 2019. What? Yep. It feels like a lifetime ago that we drank that the first time. This is the effect which uh, the current situation yeah. has on all of us. Yeah, sure. 
Um, it was in their old branding as well. So not only do we get to see a new expression of this uh, limited release, but also a new branding. Yeah. Again, part of the ongoing um, <laughs> journey, which we're having with Jack Black's branding. <laughs> with the Jack Black's branding. What do you think, uh, before the pour, Matt, 2020, Jack Black's Fresh Hop IPA? Um, look, they've obviously, they, they're using the same bottles for all of them now, whereas before the, I believe it was a 440. Yeah. Um, and i got to tell you, I far preferred the old labels. I'm so glad you shop. said that. No, that, that. That old artwork, you know. Of, that was beautiful. It was beautiful. The, with the lady with the afro and yeah. the beautiful illustrative stuff. I mean, look, this is nice, but it's not great. Look, it, it speaks to strength of brand that, that even when they miss, it's still not that bad. It's not bad. It's not bad. But, I mean, it's not a patch on what it was. The Look, can I tell you, the I actually still have the old bottle, you know, in my uh, in my kitchen because mm. it was some of the – that was probably the best artwork and the best beer labeling experience. Yeah, I would agree. That, I, that I've seen in a long time, you know. Well, that's, that's just, a, if I could get a poster of that label, I'd put it on my wall. And I, I'm not really sure why they would have changed it, mm. besides maybe updating it for the new branding, because they haven't really. They've just put. They've slapped another label on, and it's just not as good, you know. Yeah, it is a bit odd. I mean, unless they're trying. I mean, one philosophy I can imagine is that with each new expression, they'll create a new label, and if that's the case, I think that's cool. Yeah. Okay, but then you probably need some consistency in quality because this is does isn't a patch on it. You know, they need to run mm. this past a. A group of people who go, well, this label doesn't have half the impact of the last one. Yeah, I mean, it's got some nice little features in the label. I mean, the, the butterfly and the bee on the margins uh, there. Yeah, um, no, indeed. But, but very know, derivative, it, it looks, really. It's just a little bit amateurish for me. You know, it mm. just it looks a little. It's it's yeah, it's just not personal. It's not personal. It doesn't say anything to me. There's a lot of hops on the label, and that's cool. I get that that's fresh and it's hops, but I don't know. It just, it didn't, it doesn't talk to me at all. No, certainly in comparison to the old label, it's not a, it's not even in the same ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. I did look, like I say, I understand that they've consolidated all on the same bottles. So from what I can see, all the Jack Black bottles are now the same size. Um, this one's got a little neck label, mm. um, limited release, which is cool. And I like that. You know, I've got no problem with any of that. I like the Jack Black star. Um, yeah, I just it just seems weird if it, you know if you are going to do like a seasonal label that is going to change with each version of it, then make sure that it's the same quality of the one that's gone before. Or keep it within the same universe of design. So I mean, if yeah. it's illustrative, keep it illustrative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is kind of semi-illustrative, but it's also it doesn't doesn't do anything. You yeah. know, I see they've also in this new label introduced there, and you see this now more and more on their branding and in the packaging, a sort of a scale from sessioning to savoring. Oh, yes, I actually hadn't noticed that. And they've put this one right in the middle. I don't know if that appears on any other branding. It does. Uh, like Skeleton Coast IPA has got like obviously more uh, okay. uh, savouring okay. because it's their flagship West Coast IPA. Okay, so are those, are those the two extremes on the scale we talk about, between session and savour? Yeah, so I guess sessioning would be your lighter beers, um, mm. like their lager. Okay. And, and savoring would be sort of their imperial IPA or whatever. Okay. I mean, this in itself worries me a little bit because the real joy of the original Fresh Hop was that it was quite robust. Yeah. It was, you know, I would have put that pretty far on the savoring side of the scale. 
Mm. Um, and this one being in the middle, um, I'm like, okay, have they pulled back a bit? We're about to find out, man. Okay, let's get some foley. Nice foley. Your foley is so much better than mine. You're welcome. My, my foley is, is, is not, not happening. I'm doing an astonishing amount of damage to my laptop keyboard, but that's fine. Take one for the team, man. Yeah, well, my laptop is. <laughs> okay, let's get some pour here. Yeah, so I recall that, that our last review of Fresh Hop was a little muted. We were a little disappointed that it didn't live up to what we used to expect from it. Okay, all right. So no, so, so let me clarify here. So we've actually tasted this twice before. Yes. Uh, right, and the last time we tasted was the 2019 version. Yeah, the 2018 but, version was the one which really blew our minds. That's okay. That's there we go. But unfortunately, no, that was the same page. you know pre IPA leaderboard, so we didn't put that on. Okay, but if it were on, it would be very close to the top. I would imagine, yeah, because that was one of the best IPAs we've ever tasted. Indeed. So, so this one again, hazy as we know the fresh hop to be. Yep. Sort of a straw a, haziness. Yeah, but a reasonable nice IPA color. You know, it's not, yeah. it's it's opaque, but not totally cloudy. Agreed. What are you getting on the nose there, Matt? Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting APA fragrance, uh, IPA fragrances. Definitely um, more fragrant not, than the Firebird. Uh, enormously more so. Yeah, I must say, again, mm. and I was expecting this, is it's not as, not as funky as, as we've had before. Yeah, but I'm definitely getting grapefruit as the predominant uh, flavor here for me in terms of aroma. Yeah, definitely there. There's grapefruit. There's there's a you know that musty grapefruit which is very very nice, crunchy. But it's not as it's not as apparent, eh? Yeah, no, it's a bit muted. Uh, not not jumping out of, at you uh, like it used to. And on taste, um, getting that sort of pithy grapefruit again, mostly. It's it's less lemony. Um, more more sort of uh, grapefruit pith. Mm. Definitely nice solid bitterness. Yeah, there's good bitterness there. I'm going to just, I mean, I might be preempting the rating here, but I would say I'm liking this more than last year's. I almost, I agree with you. I, I'm, I was skeptical. Mm. I mean, what's your predominant flavor you're, you're extracting there? The citrus is probably right up front there. Mm. Um, there is a very, very nice crunchy bitterness that comes right after that. Um, it finishes quite clean as well. It's not hanging around too much. Okay. And there's that grapefruit. Yeah. I, I would definitely think this is better than last year's. I agree. I'm still very disappointed that I'm not getting a, a, as, as much aroma as I really would have liked. You know, you... I'm really trying hard to get something out here, but it's not as not as bold. Yeah. No, it's not bold, but I think it's not a faux pied. Mm-mm. Why are those our only two options, Marcel? <laughs> it can only be... Why must we... Well, yeah, can't we be somewhere in the middle between sessioning and savoring? Well, isn't that exactly where they are with this? Yeah, I'd actually push this a little bit more to the savoring. Mm. Um, I, I think it's a little bit crunchier than I expected. The citrus is probably a little bit stronger than I expected it. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's also not as dense. Um, I think maybe that's the citrus. It's just a little bit more cleansing, you know? Mm. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, it's definitely got a juiciness to it, which I like. Sort of more reminiscent of your, your New England-style IPAs. 
I'm wondering. I'm just wondering what I'm missing, you know, from from the original Fresh Hop. I'm just not sure what. Mm. I think know, overall it's hop quantity um, would be my guess, because the I don't think they've got a very complex malt bill here. There's there's obviously some sort of pale ale. I guess if there's any crystal malt, very little. Uh, I would more guess there's something like a Munich or a Vienna malt. Um, to complement the, the pale malt, but that's it. I don't think they've got anything else in there. Was, are you seeing any other complexity there? No, but I think that's fine. But, but but then what's missing perhaps is just quantity of hop addition. That if you if you just put more hops in, you you just get more crunchiness, more flavor, more Late citrus. Late hop or, or, or in the boil? It depends, you know, on how they're using this. I think, um, you know, you probably want to use a lot of late hopping for a beer like this. Um, because you don't want to dist- because they're using fresh hops, so they're not using pelletized hops, and you don't want to destroy your fresh hops by putting them in the boil too quickly. Um, th- and and fresh hops really shine when you use it as a late top addition. But to be fair towards the brewers here, when you're using fresh hops, it's a little variable. I mean, you're not always sure exactly what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Um, it's not compacted. It's it's a very organic product you're working with, so it's very different from season to season um, and it's sometimes difficult to judge how much to add and you know like many things in brewing and cooking once you've added too, too much hops to be you can't take it away yeah. <laughs> so, no, sure. so yeah, you want to sort of err on the side of caution when you're uh, making yeah. a, a 20,000 liter batch or whatever they, they're brewing here yeah look I think to be entirely fair I could have done with a little bit more hops but I'm very very happy with the, the balance I think it's also more robust than last mm. seasons. Yeah. Um, I think it's better than last seasons. Um, it's crunchier, juicier. Um, I just don't think it lives up to the original. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. No, exactly. And I think the what what I do I'm, I'm really starting to appreciate about Jack Black's beers um, is they they still edgy. They still clearly depart from the the average. Um, which you're getting. Um, they don't hesitate to use a lot of hops and a lot of interesting ways of making the beer. Um, but this one's also kind of a go-to beer. You know, I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to not think that I want more of this. No, no. Yeah, and you know what? I think I need to be more fair on the entire situation, which is that, you know, without comparing it to the 2017 or 2018 version that that's stuck in my head, um, this is a beautiful beer. It's a delicious beer. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I suppose the... the the, the faults that I'm picking are just the differences that I'm picking up. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. So last yeah. last time we rated the 2019 Fresh Hop a 7. You gave it a 7.5. I gave it a 6.5. Where would you put this one? I kind of want to put this at a 7.5 again um, mm. because I'd rather re-rate the other one lower. But if we can't do that... We can't, man. The judges' decisions this- are final. Then I'll put this at an eight. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd actually bump mine up by uh, by a point to seven point five. So I, I think it's it's definitely better than the twenty nineteen expression um, by quite a bit for me. It's still not exactly where we want it uh, based on our our memory, but uh, it's it's a good beer. It's it's an excellent beer. Yeah, I need to I need to stop being so negative because it's just not what I want. But um, 
Well, it's definitely in our upper echelon. I think this is definitely going to, uh, barring any major upsets of this rank order, it's definitely going to be close to the top five for us. I'm getting a little bit more Roman now that it's warming up a little bit as well. Mm. So... Yeah, look, I mean, it has to be said, we don't always judge these beers on, you know, competition conditions. I mean, we try, mm. obviously. We're using good stemware. We're trying to serve it at the right temperature. But, uh, you know, variations do happen. Yeah. yeah, look, I think I'd be happy in an eight for this. I'd be happy for this to be an eight. Good one. Eight for you, 7.5 for me. It's a good beer. People should go pick it up. And you should, if you do own some of the old you know, labeled bottles, hang on to them. They are going to be collector items. I'd love to get my hands on some of those. I have some of those. <laughs> I've got I've got one of those, but I'd like 20 of those. No, exactly. Yeah, It's a beautiful label. I, I miss that label. Cool. Without further ado, we've got one more beer left for review, and we've got a couple of, a little yeah. bit more time to go down the list and see how much we can frustrate each other yeah. with picking uh, novels. I bet you know I'm drunk enough So, so, so let me give you another one. I've got a wipe Vermitinge off my list. I'm going to go with a... Well, it's, it's not strange because it's not an excellent book, but one of the main reasons it's on my list and one of the main reasons it's on... It's one of my favorite books ever is literally the opening chapter. Okay. Is probably because it's one of the most viscerally brilliant opening chapters I've ever read in my entire life. This is intriguing. I'm going to explain it to you before I tell you what book it is. No, please do. Because I assume one of the one or two of our readers will pick it up before I even say the name. The entire opening chapter is a pizza delivery man trying to deliver a pizza. <laughs> okay. In a in a post, not even a post-apocalyptic, but in a cyberpunky, hellish, corporate-owned landscape. Right. Uh, where pizza chains are at war with each other. So he has to kind of deal with gangs and violence and okay. other pizza delivery companies trying to blow up his car while he delivers the pizza. So that's the opening chapter, and it is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Right. Um, it's very much in the William Gibson vein. It's very much cyberpunk. Mm. Um, it, you know, it, it, that's where it starts, but it, it, go, it veers off in astonishing directions. Uh, Neil Stevenson himself is a brilliant author. I've read a number of his books, um, but this is probably my favorite of it. It's much smaller than, you know, he, he tends to put out thousand page books. Yeah, quite he, often. he doesn't mind. Uh, you he, know. He's got no problem, you know, with a, with a, with a lot of weight behind his books. Exactly. Um, but, I'm, I'm um, a bit underread in him. I, I often feel a little bit ashamed at not having read a lot of his books. Um, yeah. I mean, look, it is a, it's a, it's a probably a gap in your, in your, in your reading because he's he's brilliant. Cryptonomicon is is often referred to as like the hacker bible, you know. Um, mm. It takes little jabs out of the actual storyline to talk about things like, um, you know, a man walking through the street, what pattern that makes on a graph. Okay. You know, it's 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 he's a he's a very cerebral writer, mm. very cyberpunk, very baroque you know he's he's got very he's got different genres that he works in but he's a very intelligent writer um and um yeah so snow crash is 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 my choice there well you've convinced me to read that one um i've been thinking a lot about which of his books should i read and you know if you you read a bit of his criticism it's it's sometimes intimidating you know some people say uh, you just can't Mm. it's very inaccessible or 
You know, he's on the harder side of hard cyberpunk, but he's also very um, he's interested in character. You know, like you'll mm. have vast swathes of his book where he doesn't even talk about science or or technology, where it's people diving for a shipwreck. You know, it's a he's a he's a he's an exceptional writer, and uh, you know, I, I highly recommend at least his shorter books. The longer ones, you better put some time into. Cool. Snow Crash. Good one. Snow Crash. I'm going to pick that up, certainly, as on my reading list now. Great. Now, the next one is difficult for me because I can go one of two ways. I can go very obscure or I can go on a a novel which I know is on your list and would frustrate you greatly if I picked Oh, that's a tough question. Eh? I know. And I do love uh, frustrating I'm, you. I know. I know. And I want to be frustrated. Um, it feels like you should pick one that is so obscure because all the ones you've picked have been quite obvious. Okay. So this is a more obscure one. So this is a this is a story. When I first read it, it was the first novel which really introduced me to the idea of what it might like be like to live in a world where AI partners with human beings, and where um, it certainly completely uh, predicts things like Siri and like uh, sort of personal computer assistance. Yeah. And and I just love this idea of and it was before the internet, right? When I read this, so in many ways, when when the internet happened to me. You know, in the nineties, I guess it. The late nineties. Yeah. This is Africa we're talking about. True. Um, I immediately thought of the, of reading that book, um, and what it made me feel to to have this sort of knowledge at your fingertips. You know, the universe's knowledge, and how that would change the way we operate. Okay, um, I'm I've intrigued. Been, been thinking a lot about that actually recently about how our life has changed because of the access to information. Instant access to knowledge. Yeah, and having vast knowledge. You know, not just mm. what you can find in an encyclopedia. So this is by uh, Mike Resnick, a well-known sci-fi author if you're a sci-fi geek. And the novel is called Ivory. I do not know this work. It's a very, very cool book. So Resnick, uh, you know, is a bit of a hit-and-miss author, I think. You know, some of his books are not well-received. Uh, but Ivory certainly is an incredible book, and it, it's set in a far-flung future, and the main character is the last um, surviving member of the Maasai. And he, what? Yeah. What, a cool, what a cool concept. Yeah, and he's trying to track down this artifact, uh, you know, Ivory artifact, um, and he uses the sort of AI assistant he has to try and figure that out. Um, and it's got cool little sections where he, you know, talks about devoting this much processing time to this question. And it's it's a very geeky book. It's but it's really cool. It's got great characterization. I think Reznik is pretty strong in those sort of things. Um, so it's well worth picking up. You know, if you're interested in something a little bit out of left field, uh, Mike Reznik's Ivory is is certainly worth reading. So this is the first one you've picked where the other person hasn't actually even heard of it. Okay, well I'm proud of that. Yeah, well done. Well done. I'm being so obscure. <laughs> Why don't you pick another one? I'm going to pick another one. You've already spoken about Greg Bear. I was going to choose Eon because it, yeah. again, was one of those life-changing books. But because you've already used Greg Bear, I'm going to choose Orson Scott Card, Ender's Game. That's definitely on my list, and you just sniped it. You're welcome. Um, yeah, Ender's Game, the prototypical kind of hero's journey sci-fi story um you know people have got their own issues with Orson Scott Card's politics which is fair enough um I'm a great believer in separating art from 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 the creator 
And I still think Ender's Game is probably one of the seminal sci-fi works of the last 40 years. Mm. Agreed. I mean, uh, there's not much you can say about it. I mean, the it's another one of those coming-of-age stories, which are so delightful to read. Yeah. You know, it, it's why we like books like Harry Potter and similar kind of stories. Is It's, it's nice to see how someone gets introduced into a world Absolutely. and come of age in it. And, and, and the, you know, this is a literary conceit, but at the same time, you know, people do these buildings romans because you get introduced to the world at the same time that they do. You know, Ender goes onto the space station and he gets, you know, taught how to do these things. And he is learning at the same time that you're learning. Mm. And you, that's the genius of buildings romans is that you, you become part of the story because you are accessing this knowledge for the first time as well. I, I love that book. I mean, I you know, I'm with you there. I mean, I come from a sort of philosophical tradition of separating the art from the artist and um, do as much as one can. And um, I think this is a good example of where in this game, in and of itself, is just a really good story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, you know, the, the sequel, Speaker of the Dead um, and Xenocide, um, is one of the few you know, uh, examples in sci-fi uh, or any literary fiction where the sequels are as good mm. or, you know, very, very close to as good as the original. Yeah, I, I actually yeah. think that's maybe one characteristic of really good sci-fi is that it doesn't often suffer from sequel problems. Mm. And many of the authors we've mentioned, like Greg Bear and, and this one, Orson Scott Card, they mm. the sequels are often stronger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the you look at Foundation Trilogy, um, you know, it just went from strength to strength. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke has done mm. a number of books in the same world, and, and they're often all excellent. Um, weirdly enough, I, I'd probably point at Dune and its sequels, not counting the ones that he sundered because those are terrible, mm. um, but very polarizing. You know, a lot of people have got different thoughts about different sequels to the Dune you know, main book. Um, yeah. Some like some of them and some like others and... Um, I, I can I can tell you with with Orson Scott Card with Ender's Game the the, the sequels are just as good. You really can read all of them. Mm. You're right. I mean, I I I share that sort of polarization around the Herbert sequels. I mean, I read God Emperor of Dune. I mean, it, it it's just not as good. I mean, it's yeah, you, uh, it's 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 not as horrible. You know? I think as people make it out to be though. Mm. Yeah, but then again, you know, you go online and you'll find people who think that Messiah of Dune is or Dune is is the greatest book ever written, and in the next paragraph is the worst book ever written. Mm. It's very, very polarizing. No, it is. Um, I don't think anyone looks at Xenocide or Speak for the Dead, and and you know, either you like it or you don't like it. But there's no, it's not this polarizing point of view for each of those books. No, you're quite right. Cool. So that's my good, choice. Good. Pick, what's what's man. yours? So, Give us the good stuff. Give us the good stuff. So this one, do one good stuff. This one we'll I would one obviously be stuff. completely blown away if this is not on your list. Mm. I know it's on your list. And I'm going to say that we have to bring in a certain Mr. Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's oh, Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, you shit. You, <laughs> you absolute shit. Bam. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Cross yeah. that one off. No, you have to. You have to. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide. Which, which book are you going with? You going with the original? I'm going with the original. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's maybe enough. not the best one of the series. I mean, I, I think I remember that my favorite one was Life, the Universe, and Everything was my, my favorite one. Oh, there was Mostly Harmless, which was the the last one. 
in the increasingly inaccurately named trilogy. Mm. I thought So Long and Thanks for All the Fish was the last one. No, there was so So Long and Thanks for the Fish was the fourth one. Right. I believe. I'm open to correction. But mostly harmless, he wrote quite a bit afterwards. Mm. And it's a much darker book. It's a it's a it's a much, much darker book. It's it's excellent, but it's right. It 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 turns the dial a little bit, you know? I think I liked um, Life to You and Everything because it's right in the center of that world he created. He, he's firing on all cylinders when he writes that. It's yeah. got so many cool little ideas, and it's funny. I mean, you know, it really – I mean, I guess Pratchett and Adams are the two yeah. granddaddies yeah, yeah. of comedy, sci-fi, of sat- and fantasy. Sat- satirical sci-fi. Mm. And, yeah. But Adams has always been a little more serious, a little more dark, I think, than Pratchett. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Pratchett never blew up Earth, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, although both both authors are good at highlighting some very serious social issues through comedy and through satire. Well, that's that's the point, eh? That's it certainly pretty is. Pretty so, much the point, yeah. So now, officially, Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy is off the table. Okay, fair enough. Can I ask one question about Hitchhiker's Guide? Yes, mm. I hope you've watched the movie. Oh, yeah, sure. What do you think as an adaptation? I enjoyed it. I mean, yep, I, me I thought it was close to. I mean, you cannot possibly create a one movie about the whole series, so sure. it's not going to happen. But you also can't make a perfectly authentic movie of the book. Mm. And what they did was get as close as damn it to it. Yeah, and I think the casting was spot on. Um, you know, you don't get a better Arthur Dent than Martin, than Martin Freeman. Yeah, and Moz Dev, great Mos actor. Dev, good grief, Ford Prefect. Mm. And of course, my my most favourite—I mean, dearly departed actor. Oh, Alan Rickman. Yeah, uh, I love. Um, it. I mean, I miss Mar- Alan Rickman. Marvin, man. Marvin. The world is the world is a lesser place for Alan Rickman not being in it. I'm telling you, that is every year which goes by without him in in movies. I just like it's, yeah. it's bad. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good, good, good choice. Good yeah, choice, right. my friend. So before we continue with more uh, novels, let's finish off the IPA leaderboard yes. with our final beer. It's late tonight. It's late for me. Only eyes can't see. I'm finished, but and uh, it's, it's one we haven't reviewed before. I've has, never tasted this before. Has not been on the show before. In fact, we haven't actually had any. I don't think I speak under correction, but I don't think we have really reviewed any of this brewery's beer yet on the show. But that's going to change. Um, I'm very excited about this brewery and the beer they they're bringing out. Um, it's by Frontier, who um, they've moved semi recently to Joburg. They used to be in Pretoria. They're bringing out some really excellent beers. I mean, Frontier is one of my beer festival favorite breweries. I mean, they often bring out some excellent special releases for beer festivals. And I often tend to hang out at their uh, stand at a festival and sort of sample a lot of the beers they bring. And uh, this is one of their production beers. This is one of their mainstay beers. And it's called Karma Citra IPA. What do you think of the label? I love the label. I love it. It's got this um, embossing. It's a, it's a, a matte black with a... Big green Karma Citra oval on the front, and there's this beautiful em- golden embossing on the background of the label of hops and people fucking. Apparently, there's some very wow. naughty pictures in this beer. There, there is some actual people having sex here, and I absolutely adore it. I think this is beautiful. Mm. The actual logo is nice and clean. 
The font they've used is beautiful, clean. This is not a standard craft beer label. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of this. I think the branding is excellent. It's very and it's sort of tongue in cheek because it's you have to look carefully to see that that there's a, I literally a just whole lot saw of fucking going on. Yeah, there's people banging. There's people <laughs> having sex in. This is obviously well. I mean, it's Kama Sutra, so it's Kama Sutra. These are, I think, illustrations from the Kama Sutra. I believe so. so. Um, it's it's really well done. It's 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 really well. My label is put on completely skew, which is very annoying. Mm. Um, I, that's not a great attention to detail. But besides that, this is one of the nicer craft beer labels I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I agree. Um, and also really good um, service to the beer geek here on their labeling. So in the in the description they mention. Um, a lot about what how they made the beer. Um, they say it's dry hopped, it's unfiltered, it's um, uh, India Pale Ale in the modern juicy style. So I think that's code for this is kind of supposed to be almost like a New England IPA, mm. uh, but maybe not. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that. And then they talk a bit about the hops. Yeah, look at four. Mosaic Citra hops. Uh, and I mean, I completely and utterly you know, love the fact that there are some brewers out there who are doing this. And as we often bemoan on the show, not nearly enough, right? This put, is very, put the very ingredients on your label. Tell us which hops. Uh, start yeah. educating the beer consumer that there are, in fact, different varietals of hops and malts and yeast because uh, it's only going to, you know, it's going to build the, yeah. the whole industry. Yeah, I don't like the misaligned label. There's some misaligned printing on the label. My, my label's just, dead straight. Maybe you just got like a... A bum match, yeah. man. Yeah, maybe I got a bum. It, it happens. It happens. Um, they've got this frontier life, frontier living. This is our time, which is off-centered, unfortunately. But I like it. I like the, I like the whole thing. Time for your hoppy ending. I dig that. I like. Mm. I, I, I dig this label. I dig this it's, label. It's I want to drink of, this beer. It's sort of suggestively funny without being cringeworthy. You know, if yeah. you know what I mean. Doesn't go into cringe. Yeah. So let's. I'm gonna. This is my final attempt at Foley for today. Let's okay. see. Okay, you do yours. Ah, there we go. That was slight. Shame. Okay, now you just... What, what have you got over there? Like just, some kind of... Just <laughs> a directional mic that the FBI uses. You're using like a soda stream bottle or something. <laughs> Here's the paw. Nice foley. From now on, Matt's going to be our foley artist for the show. Oh, this is a beautiful looking beer. It's a lovely paw. Yeah. Nice, very, it's more golden for an IPA. Yeah, it's got some depth. It's hazy, as they say, so it's definitely unfiltered. It's definitely dry hopped, which is one of the results of, a, you know, dry hopping is you will get haze because of the, you know, the vegetable matter in the beer. And if you're not going to filter it, you're definitely going to get quite a bit of haze. I mean, we often talk about haze and haziness in the show. And for homebrewers out there who struggle with clarity, I mean... This is going to sound completely contradictory, but there is such a thing for me as clear haze. Yeah, so I was going to say that this is—it's—it's it's actually a clear haze. It's a yeah. So what you don't it's want, an impure haze. Yeah, I think I think the distinction here, which I would draw, is that there's a difference between hazy and murky. Um, murky beer is something to be avoided. That's when your beer sort of looks as though it's like dirty dishwashing liquid. It's—it's it's got a. A funny murkiness, um, you know, like uh, there's, there's some sort of milkiness in your beer. Uh, this this is still clear in the sense that I can see through it, but there's clearly a uniform haze to it as well. And that's that's a mark of 
good brewing practices rather than having a murky beer, which often is a sign of infection or that you just did not uh, remove enough of the proteins of malt and hops out of your beer. Aroma, Matt, what are you getting out of um, the Karma Citra? Yeah, I'm, I'm also not super, super aromatic, but I am picking up citrus flavors. Yeah. I'm getting a tiny little bit of uh, of that grapefruit punch. Mm-hmm. And also maybe a little bit of caramelization as well. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got a different aroma from all the beers we've, yeah. we've tasted today. I mean, I can definitely pick up some almost candied fruit. Yeah, there's a sweetness to it. Mm. Yeah. Some some kind of sugared fruit, yeah. Yeah, so candied uh, ginger even or, or candied... Uh, ginger, that's actually a very good... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of candied ginger, that sweet ginger, that's actually a very good aromatic profile, yeah. So taste-wise, let's, nice. let's give it a shot. Hmm. Complex. I mean, right away, I think this is, for me, a more complex beer than some of the ones we've tasted today. More layers. What do you think, Matt? What are your initial impressions of uh, Karma Citra? I'm not getting any real overwhelming singular flavors. Mm. You know, it is it is very combined, very, very kind of muddled flavoring. Mm. It's not as bitter as I expected it to be. It's less I bitter. it would be a little bit more crunch to it. I mean, I'm picking up the sea drops for sure. I think sea drops is a very powerful flavor. Um, it tends to dominate other hops, in my experience, uh, when you when you pair it with different kinds of hop varietals. And as the name suggests, citra is very lemon, um, citrus flavored, uh, almost like a dry lemon. Yeah, um, flavor. a dry lemon. That's yeah. That's a that's that's pretty yeah. much what I'm tasting here. What I do enjoy about this beer is it finishes dry, and very I, dry. I've got a particular fondness for a dry finishing beer. I'd say this is a very interesting beer, Marcel. I'm, mm. I can't really isolate anything out of this. Although this is a completely different style of beer, if you compare it to, let's say, Darling's um, Long Claw Saison, mm. which has a whole bunch of citra in it, there's very similar flavors going on here. But um, the Amarillo, I think you get from the candied, uh, fruity, floral aroma, because Amarillo can be very floral if used as an aroma hops. And I think that's maybe where that um, aroma yeah. comes from. Yeah, there's a brightness to it. It's bright. I mean, I would say juicy, and I think that's what they're aiming for. I mean, if this is a New England IPA or something similar, you want juiciness. You want to try and almost create the impression that you, you've you added some fruit juice to the IPA. Obviously, some IPAs actually do add fruit pulp, but your New England IPAs tend to, to try and create that uh, fruitiness through the methods of brewing. I, I, yeah, this is actually quite difficult for me, Marcel. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying it, and I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> it's a mysterious beer. It is a mysterious beer. It's a because it's just not a it's 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 bright without being clearly delineated. You know, it's mm. I, I'm to say okay, well, there's the grapefruit. There's this. There's this, um, and I'm I can't do that here. Yeah. It's 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 the the flavors are very. I, I must say, it's incredibly well balanced, because. I'm not sure. Mm, mm. It's very, very balanced. I think that is one of the, you know, the clear things you can extract from this. It's certainly more sessiony. You know, this isn't. Mm. It's not going to overload your palate. Yeah, and uh, I think what's nice about the New England style of IPAs, they're not really session IPAs in the sense, because they're not low in alcohol. Um, this one isn't. It's five point three percent ABV. You don't, you don't taste, taste it. that, eh? And it's uh, another measure of the skill of the brewer, as we've said before. 
You don't want boozy beers. It's a it's a lovely beer, and I don't know why. It really is. It's it ticks the boxes for me for what an IPA should be in terms of showcasing hops, and and really putting it forward as the main taste profile. I mean, I like that juiciness, that sort of real, like you're biting into a grapefruit or biting into a lemon. Whereas the the previous ones we we reviewed were you you got more of the pith. Mm. This is more like the flesh of the. Well, that's the thing. Is I always found this fruit. New England IPA is a little bit too clumsy, a little a little bit too muddled, you know. Mm. And I think that was just a balancing issue, because this is very well balanced. Yeah. I, I still can't really make out individual profiles. Yeah, I think to create a beer like this takes skill. I think this is a real testament to the skill of the brewer that they are able to bounce and and mold the flavors together like this in a very satisfying end product. You know, and and as we've said before in, in other shows, in other episodes, you know, one of the criteria for judging a beer is, do I want another one? You know, does this delight me? I would, I would love another one. Yeah, yeah I would love another like, one. Look, I think in as much as there is such a thing as a session IPA, this is in fact a session IPA. That's absolutely correct. That's exactly what I'm feeling. I've got three more in my fridge. Mm. I'm going to go drink all three of them. Okay, so Matt, time to rate Karma Citra. What are you going to give it? Um, as I put my empty glass down, I really want a little bit more hop forward flavor. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason I'm going to give this a seven and a half. Okay, that's a, it's a decent rating though. Seven and a half is not bad. It's a delicious beer, dude. I've finished the whole thing. There's literally nothing left. Yeah. It's, it's very drinkable. You just want more once you've finished it. Um, I'm going to be right, right there with you, man. I'm going to go seven and a half. I think it's a decent IPA. Um, I'm tempted to go eight. Um, but I'm, I think maybe that, that would be a little too much to give. Um, yeah, I would just love some crunch. You know, just a little bit of that grapefruit crunch. Mm. That's the only thing. But, I mean, that might be a style thing more than a beer thing. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm right there with you with seven and a half. I think it's decent. It's going to uh, – at seven and a half, I think just sort of casually looking at our list here, it's going to be up in the, in the upper echelon of our ratings. It's well worth picking up. Okay. Yeah, I, look, I will totally agree with you there. This is – get this beer. Drink this beer. Yeah. Form your own decisions about it. It is it's really well balanced. Excellent beer. Well done, Frontier. Mm-hmm. I'd like to taste the other beers. What else do they make? They make a very, very nice uh, rye amber, which is one of my favorite styles. I quite like rye in a beer. And uh, they, they make quite a few others. I mean it's well I mean we're definitely gonna be working our way through their beers, there's no doubt. Okay, cool. I'm very cool with that. <laughs> So Matt, we're running out of time in the show, but I think we still have time for one novel each, and then we're gonna kind of bring out our remainders. You know, the the ones we wished we could have time to mention, or the ones that we dislike so intensely that we've made an entire separate list for them. <laughs> I think that's a different show. <laughs> okay. Books to avoid. Fine. Fine. So what's your final one you're going to put on your official list? So my final one, I'm going with the controversial one. It probably blurs a lot of boundaries, a lot of margins. Um, But it is a cult classic, um, and it isn't a novel. It's novel-y, but it's not a novel. Oh, boy. Well, it is is a novel, but it's not, if you know what I mean. Is it a graphic novel? (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a book that I wrote many years ago about a dog. <laughs> Self, self-published work, uh, not a Yeah, 
<laughs> it's vanity publishing. Yeah. Um, no, I'm going to go with um, I'm going to go with Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis, which is one of the greatest kind of graphic novel series ever made, ever. Okay, uh, I think I think graphic novels are probably a separate show, but I'll allow it. You must allow it because I don't want you to not allow it. <laughs> Good enough reason for me. <laughs> um, no, look, I mean, I think if you if you accept the fact that graphic novels are as close to novels as you know as as possible and are a legitimate work of art in their own over, then yeah. Um, then yeah, I think the Transmetropolitan, as far as this kind of sci-fi um, ongoing series is concerned, I think it fits the bill. Oh, sure. And I, 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 it's still on my reading list. I haven't really uh, dug into it sufficiently to to be able to make a educated comment on it. I, I, I was drawn to it because I went through a kind of completely insane Hunter S. Thompson, you know, yeah. maniacal, obsessive fandom. And I... Um, Did you ever leave, I, though? No, I'm still in it. Yeah. I'm still in it. I, I used to be, but I still am. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, but but at the time I was you know really really interested in pretty much everything that had to do with him, and um, I'd heard that the the protagonist of Transmet was was kind of modelled after Hunter Thompson, and um, so that's why yeah that's that's why I started reading it. And um, I look I, I haven't read all of it because I think it's it's a substantial run. Um, I think it was a you know five or six year run, but. Um, but yeah, I think it certainly fits the bill. I think it's also a little bit out of left field. Uh, and a lot of people who don't like the conventions of sci-fi might really enjoy Transmetropolitan because of the fact that it is a little bit weird, a little bit darkly comic. Um, mm. It's got it's got that sat- satire built into it, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to watch uh, or reading that, rather. Uh, yeah, on my reading list for sure. Good. So I've added two to your reading list. That's good. Yeah, it's been a good day. <laughs> my final what? one yours uh, it was a difficult one I mean there are lots of I mean you'll see them coming out now when we discuss her remainders but I'm going to go for a much more contemporary novel I read it last year uh, it really impressed me and I really enjoyed it it was recommended uh, to me as a sort of a replacement or not replacement but continuation of Ian M. Banksy type writing and set in a similar yeah. sort of space opera world uh, yeah. As it turns out, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a very accurate uh, description. It, it stands on its own. It's got its own sort of, um, you know, treatment of space opera and of big, you know, empire theme. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think you, you should pick it up because of its resemblance to Ian and Banks. I think it's just really good sci-fi. Okay. And that is Ancillary Justice by Anne Lickie. Do not know it. Hmm. It's, it's pretty much won every award available. As well, Hugo's, Nebula's, you know, it's it's really been the darling of the sci-fi award circuit for the last couple of years. Okay, it's part of a trilogy, but uh, I haven't actually read the others yet. That's still on my reading list. But Ancillary Justice, really, really good. I mean, it's just it it's, speaks to big empire themes. It speaks to again a lot of political themes, a lot of sort of meditations on on tyranny and justice and so on, as as you can only do inside of sci-fi. But also just compelling, you know, tropes which which get sort of revitalized in this in this uh, series. Yeah. So I would definitely okay. put that on your reading list, man. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's that's two that you've put on mine. Pick it up if you haven't read it. Ancillary Justice, a good one. Okay. So what didn't make your list? 
So a couple. I mean, you know, it's so difficult, really, um, to bear it down. I mean, there's. I mean, I've I had in this game as well. We mentioned that. Uh, let me let me sort of ramble off a few. We don't have a lot of time to discuss them. In yeah, just 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 list them. So narrowly missing my list would be Philip K. Dick's uh, Scanner Darkly. Mm, mm, what a phenomenal book! Yeah, that, that was also my short list. Also another dystopian, almost cyberpunky kind of world which he creates. Mm. I mean, look, uh, Man in the High Tower also. Um, or Al- High, alternate history. Yeah, really good. Or was it High Castle? Man in the High Castle. Man in the High Castle. Yeah. Um, you know, again, stuff is just excellent. Then uh, The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. Also kind of works David Mitchell with, did uh, Atlas, what, Cloud Atlas. That's correct, yeah. And staying with the themes he likes, exploring Bone Clocks is also a book around multiple reality, time travel. Uh, it's really, it's a fun read. It's, I think it's, it's a much more accessible uh, book than some of his others. Uh, so I'd really recommend that. Then... Uh, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, also a reasonably recent one, 2014 novel, kind of dystopian. I'm obviously veering away from dystopian novels right now because we seem to be living inside of one. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're choosing some some newer stuff because you know all of our all of our things so far have been quite firmly entrenched in the kind of 80s and 90s. Yeah, well, I'm going back there now in the 90s. There's a really fun kind of romp action adventure sci-fi book by a British author by the name of Colin Greenland called Take Back Plenty which is a, a, one of a series of books so I'd recommend that then um, kind of a classic author I guess Philip uh, Yosei Farmer oh uh, yes oh uh, yeah absolutely a 1971 novel Do Your Scattered Bodies Go mm. which is mm, the, that's a solid choice yeah the first novel in the river Riverworld series, sort of a really interesting contemplative series of novels about what happens to us after we die. No, there's also an element of magical realism, you know. Very much so, yeah. Uh, going back into the recent times, 2011, uh, James S. Corey's Leviathan Wakes, first novel of the Expanse series. Yeah, I've, that, that is on my reading list already. That is, the, the Expanse books are, you know, kind of prerequisite reading for any nerd. It is, and I mean, obviously the TV series is just as good. Then World War Z by Max Brooks, also a fun read. And then uh, two more before I close off. The uh, a really good sci-fi book and a series of, of books by Philip Kerr, um, and he's a British author. He, he actually is now more famous for a series of detective novels he writes, but when he started out, he, he started out as a sort of a British version of Michael Crichton. And he wrote quite a few Michael Crichton-ish kind of books, but I always thought he did it better than Crichton. Um, the one I'd, I'd pick out of that early work would be Philosophical Investigations. So that's a really cool uh, crime story set in the future where, yeah, well, it, it sort of riffs off philosophy and philosophical authors. It's well worth picking up. I always thought that would make a good movie as well. I don't think mm, they ever mm. turned it into one. No. Um, and then... I'm going to pick Ian MacDonald, the Northern Irish writer. The one I'd pick there is an early 90s one called Chugga. 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 It, it's sort of, if you read it now, it's very reminiscent of something like Annihilation. Um, you know, that sort of story of a, a sort of an alien um, infestation of the earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But like in a very weird and bizarre way. 
Uh, but Ian McDowell's writing is really good. His, his short stories are probably better known. Um, but he, he writes like no other author I've ever encountered. He was also one of the very first sci-fi authors I started reading who wrote almost exclusively in the present tense. And oh, that's interesting. got away with it. That's very interesting. Yeah, so he's, he's a very interesting author. Going through my list, I don't, can't see any others I'd like to mention. I guess one should mention Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. Mm. It's mm. not a bad novel. Yeah, I did establish uh, an entire kind of, uh, you know, line of fiction so why not why not and i think that is me what are, what are your remainders matt what do you uh, have on your long list uh, yeah a couple i mean there's ven avengers sequel to a fire upon the deep uh, mm-hmm. which is deepness in the sky which is excellent um the difference engine by sterling and william gibson nice uh, which is a brilliant little cyberpunky steampunk actually novel also quite episodic but but excellent. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson did the Mars trilogy. Oh, I wanted to mention uh, that. Yeah, mm, good which one. Which is which is also landmark. You know, mm. really really great writing. And that's very hard um, sci-fi. I thought that's sort of almost very hard near future. Yeah. I've got a very soft spot for Tad Williams, who who I believe was originally a a fantasy author exclusively, but he did uh, the Otherland saga, which is a very dense four books um, that. Um, are, are, they're also quite genre-breaking. Yeah. Um, I know my, my, more of his fantasy. I didn't know he wrote sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. I actually prefer his sci-fi to his fantasy. So, um, you know, um, Otherland. It's great, great series of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mentioned him before, Peter F. Hamilton, but he's got a whole bunch of space opera that he's pumped out in the last couple of years, uh, which is really brilliant. I mean, it's just such escapist fantasy stuff. I've just started getting into Brandon Sanderson, and apparently he's like the go-to current sci-fi god. Okay. Um, I've picked up one of his fantasy novels recently. I didn't really care for it. Yeah, he apparently he's, he's the, you know, the next George R. R. Martin kind of thing. You know, yeah. he's, he's very prolific. He writes like a book every three months or something. So I'm looking forward to reading more of his stuff. Um, I'm, like I said, just getting started. Um, more Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, the original Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Mm. Uh, um, Larry Niven, Jerry Pinnell, The Mote in God's Eye, which yeah. was also, that was very early, 1976. I think I read that when I was like still in my teens. Mm. And Larry, Larry um, Niven's good fun. He's very tongue-in-cheek kind of Absolutely, author. yeah. Um, he, he also did um, uh, Ringworld, yep. I think it was called. That and, was on my you know, long, long list. Super, super... Uh, hard sci-fi, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and then my last one is like it's very difficult to, you know, I, you know, mo- most of my favorite Asimov stuff comes from before our watershed sixty-five year. Um, but Arthur C. Clarke did a lot of stuff after that, and Arthur C. Clarke is kind of the granddaddy of sci-fi. Um, mm. You know, two thousand and one and Rendezvous with Rama and all yeah. those books. And I think those are all kind of required reading. Um, Absolutely. So, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my list. Um, my list of things I want to read is longer than the list of things that I have read. But but that's always good. It means that you you haven't uh, you haven't stopped. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think so, listeners so, to yeah. to the show today are probably hopefully have been able to add a few to their list. Yeah, or they've gone, you idiot! Why you didn't say this <laughs> didn't one? Say this one. Yeah, Why didn't you say? Robert Silverberg's Book of Skulls, idiot. Yeah, there's always something we'll leave out. And as we yeah. as we talk now, I I can think of a few I've I've left out, but I'm not going to mention them. No, no, it's, it's not a rabbit hole. 
it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's it. That's good one. Uh, that's all the sci-fi that you ever have to read. Beer-wise, Matt, we we had a few good ones today, a few not so good ones. What's your star of the show? I really enjoyed the Kama Sutra. Um, mm. I'm gonna have to sit down and give it another, you know, proper agreed, proper go. Um, yeah, and the, it's nice to have the fresh hop is still going around. Yeah, and um, I'm happy but to. I'm, I look forward to it every year, but let's mm. see what they come up with. And I think 2020 is a better one, and that, that was for me yeah. the the sort of uh, highlight in a way. Even though it yeah. wasn't necessarily the best IPA ever, it was nice to see that they're kind of back on track, moving in the right direction. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, Matt, um, anything you're doing which you want people to know about before we uh, leave? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've um, you know I've done a lot of kind of organization on my Lego collection. That's that's always um, very vital. You know, I've compartmentalized a lot of the different shapes and colors. I'm I'm still not sure whether to go shapes only or colors only or some mixture of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that's that's a pretty big thing for me at the moment. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've got a blog. You guys can follow me, and I'll I'll be posting updates. I can't wait to read the first installment. <laughs> it's going to be gripping. I'm no stranger to sarcasm myself. <laughs> yeah. And you, what you up to? Uh, writing more articles for Beginner Brewer. I think uh, listeners will will see that we've published much, uh, quite a few more articles than normal. I hope that we can maintain that sort of publishing schedule. Um, so go and check out beginnerbrewer.com and you'll see uh, what I'm talking about. We, we've just finished publishing a really nice series of articles on how to get into homebrewing in the quickest possible mm. way. That should be fun for people who are new to the hobby. And uh, yeah, so watch the space. And with that, it's uh, goodbye from me. And, and goodbye from me. <laughs>